What's going on, everybody? Cali Death Podcast back once again, episode 122. I am your host, Anthony Trapani. What's going down? I'm here as always with at least a couple resident homies with me. Got Casey Howard and Joel Horner with me. What up, y'all? Hello. And uh, another Thursday night and another legend alert, guys. We got Jason Goble of cynic monstrosity all uh, you have new projects that we're going to talk about all that stuff dude thank you so much for being with us jason thanks for having me thanks dude you i I mean i said it on uh paul's episode i'm going to say it to you again i've called cynic my favorite band for two plus decades you know over 20 years i focus was a very very important and still is a very very important album throughout all the years that I've been uh, involved in metal and it still stands on top for me today oh, as we so talk. Much. Thank you and, so uh, much. I'm really, really excited to, uh, to get into tonight for sure, dude. And, um, but before we do that, let's do some plugs real quick. Let's do uh, battleforgecoffee.com, the homies and D's of flesh coffee company. They got good coffee, sick merch, get over there and support the homies um for us it's going to be calideathpodcast.bigcartel.com still got a couple more a couple t-shirts in stock there i don't know what sizes we still have but they're still available full color uh design and the og logo if you guys want to support the show that is the place to go the only place to go unless you want to send us money in the mail or something is that illegal is that legal i don't know <laughs> or no maybe you could uh hit up uh, joel on the side uh, for a venmo account or something like that but uh yeah that's where you, the main place you can uh put a little money into the pot then did i, did I just it. freeze up again motherfucker <laughs> the starting you freeze as i was saying in the middle of that you guys you guys went to black for a second i'm like fucking frozen again am i frozen right now there you go. All right. Um, what else we got? We got Generator Rehearsal Studios. Casey and uh, SOMB are down there in uh, uh, what Oceanside. Is that where it's at? It's I remember that. Nice. Oceanside. You, you want to uh, rehearse. That is the place to go because Casey will be involved and he will help you get a place to get your band to the sickest places it can get. I don't know. All right. And uh, <laughs> the tour that we're sponsoring, too. Got to give it up to the homies in Archaic Headliner. Um, they'll be going out. I can't. I don't have my glasses. Yeah, it's uh, March 11th starts, and it's going all the way to uh, March 28th. There you go. So if you... It's March, you're... February 11th. Jesus. My brain. I've been working hard all day. February 11th to March what? No, February. No, it's... Uh, May eleventh. Jesus, I am out of it. May eleventh to uh, May twenty eighth. Okay. May eleventh to May twenty eighth. The homies in Archaic are going to be shredding faces, and if you're at one of those places that I can't read right now, go to that place on that date because you will be very stoked. Oh yeah, going to oh sick dude. Ricky's going to the uh, Anaheim date. That's what's up. I'll be uh, well, actually going to be seeing uh, the archaic dudes 
this next weekend. Days. Yeah, the singer is getting married, and Jared's getting married in a couple days. So yeah, dude, congratulations to him and his future wife, and I can't wait to rage for your love. <laughs> <laughs> but Jason, dude, all right, we did, we got through it all, right? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Okay, Jason, is do you want to plug uh, new stuff that you're you've been involved in that you want people to check out right now? Actually, I don't have anything um, really to plug besides a band that's coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, should have an, a release, I would think, early uh, 2024. And uh, the band is called Amnion. And um, it's a few guys that I'm working with out of Germany. And um, it's, uh, it's not death metal. It's more of a fusion metal. But mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be a really cool, cool project. And looking forward to it coming out and uh, got some cool players on there uh, playing on the album and should be, should be a cool deal, but that's, how do you that's s- the only how do you spell it how do you, for the listeners. How do you spell it? A M N I O N. Okay. Got it. Um, cool. Is that uh, uh, something that you started and are like a part of the creation of it or is it something that you joined after so actually they um the band reached out to me they had some issues with um their guitar player was having some health issues or something like that so he couldn't finish all the music uh on their album and they were just uh interested if i might be willing to do it and i said hey send me send me over the tracks so basically it was just uh, drums and bass. They sent me a full song drum and bass already, you know, mapped out. And I basically wrote the guitars, uh, over the music. Wow. So it, it's, it's, it's been a different approach, but it's been really interesting because it, it already gives a structure for me to work over. Mm-hmm. And since it's, you know, it's someone else's complete, you know, song structure, um, gives me a chance to kind of approach it differently than I would normally approach writing music that makes right. sense. right no it totally makes sense and actually that's that's cool because um as somebody who creates anything you can fall into a certain thing that works the best for you but actually i think that some of the coolest things come out of being put into an uncomfortable not you're not used to this type of environment or this way of doing things and then once you're on your toes, then that actually brings certain things to the surface that um, become greater than they could have been, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of that situation. I mean, these guys put together some um, uh, some great songs and, you know, it's 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 got groove. It's got odd meter. You know, it's uh, there's there's times uh, when it's clean, times when it's pretty heavy and definitely uh, very fusion-y styled. Um, are they Florida based? No, Germany. Oh, Germany. wow. Okay. Yeah. They're out of Germany. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been, a, it's been a, <clears throat> a different way than instead of collaborating or writing with, with a few people together, kind of writing on top and weaving around and, and, um, working around their structure and their, their tonalities on top of it and, and time meters. Mm-hmm. So it's different. It's been different, but it actually the the end product has been really cool. Like like you said, it pushed me to 
to approach things differently and to play a little differently on the on the music. And they were uh, are wonderful, wonderful guys. When they approached me, I told them, "Hey, listen, I really don't play as much, you know, speed death metal, you know, anymore. I'm kind of more into the fusion thing." Mm-hmm. Uh, they were like, "Listen, let's send you the music if you like it. You know, we'll go from there." And I liked I liked what they sent me, and they said, "Do whatever you want, play whatever you nice. want, just go." And um, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to do just that." And they ended up liking it, so it Killer. worked out real well. Um, I'm doing four songs on the album. Uh, one of them, uh, Santiago Dobles from uh, Agora is playing on. Wow. Uh, with okay. And then he may be playing on on this last song that I'm working on now, as well. But we'll see if how his time frame works out. But um, I but love yeah, Agora. So Agora is a great yeah. project. Uh, yeah, and Santi's a great player, you know. So he's a great player. I know that one. That's actually one thing I wanted to get into a little bit was like you post a lot of videos of him recording, right? You post a lot of the like him sitting at the computer, and I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And because of you posting those videos, I went and did a little research and was like, got into Agora and all other things that he was doing. And oh, man, really? that, guy's a, that guy's a player, man. That guy's a great player. Oh, yeah, guy's, oh, he's like a producer mind, right, too? He's like a producer? Oh, well, he's, he's a total engineer. I mean, that's okay, what he okay. does uh, for a living on the side is he, he goes and works stadiums and works all kinds of huge engineering wow. gigs and TV shows and, you know, um, wow. all kinds of... Yeah, he sent me a picture... Uh, he was he was uh, filming Trump at one of his uh, events and doing the audio for it and stuff wow, like that. Wow. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, yeah he's, and, and and then he had years ago he had his own studio and so he's done the whole music engineer thing as well. Um, so yeah, yeah. So he's he's a heck of a player, but he's he's a, he's a heck of an engineer as well. Yep, definitely. And a heck of Very a writer cool. too, dude. That that guy can write really yeah, so, catchy songs. So you you were saying that um, you just started. Uh, how you doing, guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, just so, introduce the professor host. real quick. Joseph is here with us tonight. Joseph K, what's going on? Here's our you have the full Cali Death host Shindel. Nice. Well, Casey's yeah. gone right now, but hey, <laughs> uh, cool. you got hey, us all to have you on, man. I'm a big fan. And uh thank you yeah, so much. Just just got off work, did my best to get here on time. So glad you yeah, made absolutely. it. I'm rat, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked you're here, dude. Cool. Well, I'm here for the ride, so wherever you guys were, just <laughs> continue yep, on. We were talking about Santiago and Agora and, oh, and hell yeah. how he's involved in uh, the new project that Jason's in as well. Yeah, I've been following that. I've been watching all the videos on Facebook. It's sounding mm-hmm. really cool so far. Yeah, yeah. It should be a fun project and looking forward to getting it out uh, hopefully uh, early 2024. Nice. Oh, yeah. This is, more, this is more probably a question for... Um, like when we're in the timeline, there's a little crackling going on. It might be. That's me. Yeah, it is you. No, we just lost. <laughs> yeah, one second. Cool. No, um, your shit. Yeah. So, um, you getting into fusion stuff, you know, because I've always been like into that. Like, a, I mean, it started with like Alde Miola, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Alde Miola <laughs> and, uh, and all, all these other kind of fusion projects and stuff. Was that kind of like a young, like, so when you were, were you like into that stuff as a, like, because I can tell with focus and stuff that has a lot of, fusiony kind of vibes in it and it seems yes. like it's been with you for a long time yeah yeah actually by the time we we actually recorded focus we weren't even listening to much metal we were always listening to jazz and and fusion and we were already doing the Holdsworth and mahavishnu orchestra and you mm-hmm. know all that type of stuff and um 
and the straight ahead jazz and bebop and all that. But um, I think that that we were, you know, we were metalheads, you know, as kids for sure. Um, I mean, I guess there's so much to it, but also growing up in Miami, all the different cultural music, cultural background and everything that we were exposed to. Um, we were always open. And then when we wanted to explore music a little bit more, it was pretty much um, going to college time, you know, um, it was pretty much jazz or classical. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I, I had walked by the classical guitar teacher and he's sitting there and he's students sitting there and he's got a, a ruler that he's whacking the guy on the finger. And, you know, it's just, it was so structured. And then I looked into the room jazz and there was this guy long hair beard sitting with a steinberger dave weisbrow looking super chill and they were laughing having a good time and i'm like that that's where i'm going something more free and open or whatever and ended up you know started studying jazz from there and yeah and uh, well jason let me cut you off right there real quick because yeah, yeah. just that that's all great stuff and we're gonna get to that but um how we do it on the show is we like to go back even further than that so before Cynic, before everything, we want to know what was going on in your childhood at home. When did you um, discover music um, organically? You know, when, what was that? Maybe not what was that, but just remember that time that like music actually pulled you in, you know, at, at actually, the youngest you can think of. Very young, very young, actually. Um, cartoons. Yeah, I was. I, I loved cartoons. I loved um, Bugs Bunny. I loved, um, um, gosh, what Tom and Jerry and and the cartoons that had uh, the orchestras doing the music. Carl's you know? calling. There you go. There you go. And yeah. that's what actually started really getting me into. Uh, I started wondering what all those sounds were, and I just I loved the music behind all the cartoons, and also. I had young parents, so my mom was always playing music on the radio, and there was always uh, the radio was always on. So very young, I was interested in music, and I remember listening and thinking, "What is making this sound? What is making that sound? Why is this in this pattern? Why is you know?" Mm. Um, had no clue at all, you know. But, Great questions uh, for somebody who doesn't, you know, those those questions will get you somewhere pretty fast. If those are your first questions about music. You yeah, know. well, I was just like, what is this I'm hearing? You know, I mean, it, you know, it, it was amazing to me. And um, yeah, so so that's what kind of interested me in music. And um, and then my brother started, uh, he picked up bass around 11 or 12. And mm-hmm. I'm like three, three and a half years younger than him. Okay. And yeah. Um, Long story short, from there, I, I tried drums to begin with and realized I am not a drummer in any way. Um, but then, eight years old, I got a guitar because my uh, my brother was playing bass and drums didn't work out for me. And they had another guitar, and I wanted to be the other guitar player. I was the little brother that you know wanted to wanted to play. But um, that's when I got my first guitar, and. Um, so real let's let's go into like what your parents were listening to some types of uh, music that you were listening to before you picked up the guitar because there okay. was obviously so it was the cartoons but was there anything else that your yeah, parents my, were listening my, to at home my mom was listening to um 
she was a young mom, so whatever was hip and was popular at the time. But I mean, it was it was um, everything from classic rock to Motown to um, uh, disco. You know, loved all the disco uh, music, and um, so it was it was I would say pretty much more on the pop side. You know, more on the the regular radio airplay at that time. And, and yeah, yeah, we're talking probably nineteen. I, mean, I was born in nineteen seventy. So, mm -hmm. uh, so whatever, you know, was going on around then five, six years old, 76, 77. Oh yeah. And actually she listened to a lot of AM radio too. So I heard like Jim Croce and ABBA and, you know, Super mm -hmm. Tramp and, you know, all those kind of bands too. So, right. um, it was kind of a, a spectrum, you know? And then of course, just growing up in Miami, there's always being played or at, parties or gatherings and stuff like that so um there was a lot of that also was kind of being exposed to the latin music did we lose him or did we lose me <laughs> are we still here fuck dude is it me no, it's not you. Oh, okay. no, 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 no. It's uh, Jason's internet, perhaps. Yeah, Probably. Yeah. Okay. Let me, yeah. Uh, I had some internet issues. I had to plug in just now. It's all good. We'll, it's all good. We'll, all right, happens, man. We just. Gonna, will, yeah. I will uh, message him right now. Well, without internet, he might not get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I still though, think dude. like. Actually, my favorite loss of internet was definitely the the Alan Cassidy one, where he was like, bah, bah, bah. <laughs> he like yeah. froze, he froze, like doing a funny face. Uh, yeah, we'll get him back. Text yeah, him right now. Okay. Get, I am. Yeah, just usually, you'll just yeah, it's pop back on. Yeah. It's so, how's good. it going, Joseph? Good to see you, man. Oh, he's. I mean, he's muted. <laughs> oh, wait, Jason's coming back right now. Back. I'm good. All, right. All right, here we go. There we go. Got there you, there guys. Just lost you there. Sorry about that. It's all good. It happens. Yep. Definitely happens. So we were we were uh at um seventy-six, you know, like what was popular then. And actually you started talking about ABBA and and other bands that she was playing, but I forget where we went from there. Well, it's just kinda um you were asking, uh, you know, what, what kind of music was around me or had influenced mm -hmm. me, you know, at, at my youngest point. I would say it was probably around then five or six years old. A lot of the the radio music, everything from pop, rock, you know, Motown, disco that was being played to uh, the AM radio type music, the old 70s AM um, music mm -hmm. and cartoons, you know, was uh, kind of what got my ear pulled towards music. And then, right. Um, and actually with everything that you mentioned too, Jason, like having the cartoon music as something else that you were interested showing you that there's actually like intricacy in music because the, the, especially I, I mentioned stalling stalling is such a great example of how intelligent the music is written to these cartoons. Oh, it was insane. It's insane, dude. It's so outside of like normal music writing for it, like, yeah, because you're writing to the visuals, you know? Yeah. So think of your time structures, think of, you know, how they're just, 
they're all over the place, man. All over the it, place. It, it's uh, yeah, it's absolutely insane what they uh, did back then. Yeah, it's like previous, it's like what the Ron Jarzenbeck, you know, kind of info. I mean, that's where you could tell where he that's got a lot. Where of he from. got it from, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you could tell like his phrasing and stuff is just based on. I mean, you know, Bambi and all that stuff that he did, but yeah. just taking like a take. I mean, there was there was uh, even it's like there was that one drummer I've talked about it before, but the the drummer that played with Necrophages for Necrophages for a little while, Marco Miniman. Uh, Marco Miniman, where he like does that one, you know, that uh, drum video where he just takes people saying things or funny noises and he makes the time signature behind it and, yeah. and they're like what the fuck is this regular language but it's like a crazy he's all oh this one's in 1760s this is, you know he's like he like totally breaks it he's all counting out i'm like holy shit that's like it's crazy how math and like that organized yeah, things that for us orchestra. yeah with an orchestra for a whole you know what four or five minutes how long's the cartoon i don't know but yeah, yeah pretty amazing pretty amazing that is Absolutely. insane to think of like an orchestra that just is ready to go like play cartoon t- tunes like all perfect like lined up like it's gnarly, dude. Like, imagine yeah, being a guy, yeah. being the guy, the one guy in the orchestra where you're only supposed to like make the <laughs> when like yeah. Bugs Bunny wiggles his tail or some shit like that. Right, right. Someone had to do it. Yeah, you don't want to fuck that part <laughs> up. That's very important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone's getting yelled at for not getting that tail part right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no punching in, you know. <laughs> So that's cool, dude. Okay, so then, all right. So fast forward a little bit. You just uh, you see your brother and you want to follow suit. That's he's playing bass. You said, and I'm like, yeah, he was he was playing bass, and um, um, actually, I remember, I remember um, watching a, a commercial, a Kiss commercial. Uh, Kiss mm-hmm. was coming. It was 1978. I remember it was Kiss Alive or something, and they were coming to Miami. And there was a commercial, and I saw him on stage and Gene spitting blood and shooting fire and Ace Frehley with the smoking guitar and um, and I remember that's when I was like, man, now that would be fun, playing yeah. live, you know, doing something like that, and and that kind of inspired me, you know, that and and uh, and of course, you know, my brother playing too and all that, and so I just ended up asking for a guitar, you know, and finally my, my grandfather uh, bought me my first guitar when I was eight years old. And, um, and that was it, you know, they, I actually got one lesson. I got, a, I got one lesson. They, we had someone come to our house and he taught me some open chords, like an open E, open G, open A, open D, mm-hmm. and then showed me the two jobber bar chords mm-hmm. and, um, a major and a blues scale nice. and that's all that I had that was the only real direction I had you know how to hold the pick and how to how to play it you know but I had one lesson and from there I played on my own until I was in junior high my first year of junior high they had a guitar class so I went in to take the beginner's guitar class the guitar teacher watched me play and he said you can't be in this class you have to be in the advanced class and so i went into the advanced class and i still was um more advanced than the kids that were playing there and the problem i had was that i i hadn't really had i only had one lesson so everything that i had learned i learned by ear Mm -hmm. so everything that they were teaching in the class if I could hear it, I could figure it out and play it. I never needed to read the, the notes, <laughs> the yeah, paper. Yeah, yeah. 
I really didn't get much direction in the class. It was like an hour I had every day to jam at, at school. Um, but uh, that was most, you know, most of the direction I had until college. So building up to... But mostly I've just been, a, I've been an ear player. I was going to say, so Jason, building up to that junior uh, high situation. Okay, sorry. Lost your audio for a second. Go ahead. Okay, okay I was going okay, um, to say, um, moving move to junior high, what was that, that process of you, uh, you know, you took your one lesson and then you were saying that you were just playing on your own. Were you uh, just learn you said you were learning by ear so it would just be random songs that you just grab and be like i want to learn that and you just sit there and figure them out wow yeah we just figure out songs you know i mean this is this is back before computer days and you know youtube and all that type of stuff so right um so good old you know tape deck and and do you remember do you remember the first song you learned by ear No, not really. Um, or one that that stands out from that era, maybe that that you got excited about learning. Jeez, I can't really pull anything out to be honest with That's you. All right. you know? That's all right. That's all right. I just figured, I figured maybe we can get one of those in there. Yeah, That's fine, I mean, I think, I think I think. Uh, Actually, stick sweet, Madam Blue. I figured out that was one of the ones I enjoyed. Have a cigar. Oh, I just listened to that song two days ago, dude. Uh, I fucking love that song, song yeah. dude. Great, great song. song. Um, but you know, stuff like that, like all the the the, the classic rock music, and, and that's what kind of pushed me towards towards metal. So so I'm in junior high. I'm I'm playing uh, music. I I started. I could I could actually when I was younger I could sing better than I could play. So my brother, still being a few years older, he had his uh, his early high school bands, and I ended up singing for them. It's funny there was the, the guitarist at the time was a better guitar player than me, but he wanted to sing, and I was a better singer than him, but I wanted to play guitar, you know. <laughs> but um, so you know, I, I kind of did the the whole rock scene, you know, the classic, the metal, the Dio, the Ozzy, all that type of stuff, and um, was learning and playing guitar the whole time as well. And um, that's when I started to get bored with with it. You know, it just wasn't stimulating to play, and I wanted more. And that's when I ended up uh, pushing towards the heavier side of of metal and getting into you know even started easy with you know like the Metallicas and Megadeth, and then mm-hmm. uh, you know progressed from there into was the your, faster. Was your brother mm-hmm. listening to all that stuff at the same time? No, no. So my brother ended up he he ended up going the other direction. And he ended up playing more in the more in the commercial rock scene, like the old um, um, glam, you know, like, like the glam, the glam stuff. Yeah, yeah. He, he ended up going in more in the glam direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's when we kind of separated. By the time I was in ninth, tenth grade, you know, I was already heading in in a different direction. So you were um, discovering the metal on your own, though? Or did you have a friend that you were... I, I, I was discovering it on my own, believe it or not. Wow. Um, I didn't have anybody that was into the heavier stuff, and I just started actually um, looking for, for heavier stuff, and then, and then I had found 
you know, like you have the, your standouts that would always stand out, you know, like Slayer and, you know, stuff like that. You know, the big, big guys back then mm-hmm. was where I started, but I didn't really have many friends that listened to metal. So I, I kind of started with that. And then I would go to the record shops and just look for the most brutal album covers I could find. And you know what I mean? And just start yeah. uh, uh, digging out bands. That's actually literally something that no matter what age you're, you are, it, it always is something that we hear on this show is going to the record store and going off of album covers, logos, and song names and record labels, yep. you know? That's all, yep. Go for for producer, record labels, song names, album covers, just anything that looked, uh, that looked heavy. And back then, that was it. You took a gamble and you bought it and you had either an album or a you know, uh, a cassette and, and whether you liked it or not, you listened to it. You listened to it many times before you said, okay, I, I, I don't think I like this or I do like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like today where there's so much at your fingertips for free, you know? I would never, I, I always was like that too. I wouldn't just make my judgment the first listen. Like, okay. Yeah. You, Unless you it's just listen. something that's really, really terrible, obviously. Yeah. But it's kind of, but yeah, it's it. Those those. I really love thinking about that time in my life, though, too, of how it felt when you came home and you had the CD or the record that that looked good in the store, and then you put it on, and it's even better than you thought it was going to be. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And then just the fun of of reading the album and the you know the the record in the sleeve and you know all the information on there, and mm-hmm. it's a different experience. It's it's that. I guess the younger generation doesn't really get to experience as much today. Right, know? right. Or, or a massive record store, you know, record uh, yeah. uh, shop to go look through that you don't see too the, often. The, the only bummer about CDs was that they get scratched, you know? Maybe yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so annoying. Yeah. <clears throat> I yeah. bought Pearson within like three times. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, dude. You bought what? A suffocation pierced from. from oh, really? From, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I seriously bought that at least two, twice or three times. And that's funny that you say that because I've bought yeah. Focus like four yeah. or five times, and currently have like four copies of it. And oh, all the I have the like re-release with all the extra tracks and my one clean original version. You know, all that kind of oh, shit. But wow. I'm still. Like over the years, I have repur. I think that Focus is probably the one that I've most repurchased, just because it's gotten That's so crazy. torn up. You've got more than more than I have. Collectibles <laughs> 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 or copies, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I, I got a couple discs. I think I got a Japanese version or or whatever, and uh, yeah. And I have one of the first print, and I think one of the second print or something like that yeah. uh, album. Yeah. But, God, the, I love it so much. That's why I own so many, dude. The worst was those CD booklets. They seemed convenient. Yeah. <laughs> just like scratch the shit out of your CDs. Like the worst were the ones that were like, going on the above the car, like or on the visor. Oh, the thing. visor. Yeah. And you're just like right. pulling them out and just putting them in. Like you go camping and just like dust getting in and it's just. Psh. You ever That's heard of a thing? I'm sorry to go into the weeds on CDs, yeah. but I heard this other thing recently that I didn't even know was a thing. It's called. A uh, CD rot, like your CDs can actually just rot. Over oh yeah, time. probably from oh, moisture or something. And and yeah, and and I'm like, well, I don't want my shit to rot, dude. Does everybody <laughs> here still own CDs? I'm gonna buy a, C- I uh, 
one of my rooms is going to be uh the humidity controlled shit where i keep all my Just physical CDs. stuff okay. be like a couple yeah. cigars in there some CDs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> i bet your wife is stoked on that all over <laughs> yeah dude i gotta put it uh two kids in one room to make that happen but uh, <laughs> yeah. double up they'll understand later on in life yeah. <laughs> no that's cool <laughs> no but all i right. mean even before that though i mean there was you know when i was first getting into music and stuff it was i mean cds were probably brand new like, but it was, you know, the tapes and the, you know, like listening to the tapes. And remember when, like, you'd be listening to a tape, you'd be all stoked on, and all of a sudden start speeding up and be like, ah, and it would just eat, get eaten. Like, yeah. just be, yeah. be ruined just because yeah. of the player, you know? Oh, yeah. Lost many a like, tape in my day. Yeah, I'd like rewind them. Like, you had to like put work into them to like fix them. The pencil, the pencil <laughs> in. Yeah, the pencil. Fit them back exactly. in. Yeah. That was a life hack back then. I know that uh, yeah. with CDs though, you'd there'd be that one CD like why like Casey would buy four of them is because there's like one part that you're looking forward to and it's yeah. like nap, 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 yeah. you're like oh you get so mad that you're like I gotta rebuy this because yeah. like you know I need that part like I need to go back and it was and they were expensive back then they weren't cheap you know yeah for sure definitely so, so back on the uh, yeah yeah I was, I was gonna say back on to uh, Jason because we just went into the weeds like usual yeah. um <laughs> but yeah dude so all right you're discovering all the ex more extreme stuff on your own and it's just by luck of the draw type deal going to record stores reading magazines probably that type of shit yeah that was that was pretty much it you know i um gosh around in my teens i had some challenges you know normal normal stuff um growing up challenges a couple friends died and you know stuff like that so um i was kind of in a loner stage and i was just just playing guitar man playing guitar and and hunting down music and um and it's funny that's a that's about the time that i ended up running into paul and sean um because I was I was playing I was playing a lot I was playing metal but I was pretty much just playing at home alone I was just just woodshedding you know it's just jamming mm -hmm. and my brother was still playing actively in local bands and stuff like that so he ended up um, they used to have uh, keg parties you know where people would just they'd get an open field they'd bring a bunch of kegs set up a state a stage five bands would come and play they charge five bucks a head to get in and um, that's how shows just would pop up everywhere back in the day, uh, all the local, all the local shows. So, my brother ended up playing a playing a show with Cynic. Uh, they mm. ended up in their very early days, and I think it was it was Paul Sean, it was Mark Van Erp and Jack Kelly. Yep. Wow. Um, and they had just done the first demo. I was going to say like that's that. the '88 lineup right there. Right right and um so yeah. what happened was 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 cynic actually played the slot before my brother's band and as my brother was walking on stage and they were walking off my brother goes um hey if you guys are looking for another guitarist you should talk to my brother because he's he loves playing that pissed off shit that you guys play <laughs> <laughs> and uh and they said actually we are looking so for probably. a guitarist so um after my uh after my brother played, he ended up walking Paul and Sean over, and that's how we that's how we ended up meeting. Wow! And 
And then that's when I got, <coughs> excuse me. Did you see Cynic before you met them? Did that you see them night. play that night? Yeah, that night. I okay. saw them. Um, how, was your, saw well, how was your reaction to that? It was interesting because it was actually, wow, fuck, finally someone that's playing stuff that I want to play. You know yeah, what I mean? I was, because, uh, a lot of it was uh, the glam rock and stuff, and I just hated it. You know, I, I hated yeah. the, the 80s metal or whatever, you know, rocker. But um, so, yeah, I'd actually watched them. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. They're, uh, they're playing some aggressive stuff, and they're going for it. And um, so, uh, so it was a surprise to me, and my brother ended up walking them over to me. And uh, we ended up talking that night. And we set up a, uh, a jam. I went by the warehouse and jammed with them. And I, I think they were, there was a, a couple other guys they were playing with also that they were considering. Um, but um, we got together to jam and it was interesting. You know, they, they kind of just stood, sat down and said, play something, you know. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we're not gonna even get a jam. It was just like me play something for them or whatever. I mean, you were kids. We were 16, 17, something like right. that. Um, so I just ended up playing some of the stuff that I write. You know, I started playing some some of my ideas because I didn't know any, you know, uh, um, couldn't think of anything else to play. So I ended up playing a few of my ideas. And then they ended up going, well, did you actually wrote that? And I'm like, yeah, those are my ideas. And they really liked it. And um, I think from there we jammed a little bit. And then the next day they called me and said I was in. Wow. So like, could you and so back to the, to the music side of it. Um, that's when I got exposed to a lot more metal, even, you know, with Paul and Sean, those guys were tape trading and, you know, had been following the scene even longer than me. Um, right. But yeah, I got exposed to even, you know, even more metal. Oh yeah. Uh, I was going to say that that probably was a deep download for you because the tape trading thing became reality for you at that moment, right? You you cut off for a second, but what about the tape trading? I was I was saying that uh that, that must have been a deep download for you because the tape trading thing probably you didn't even really know about it at that time. No, I didn't. I didn't even know. I mean, I had heard about it, but I had no way of knowing. I guess you got to get your first tape trading zine, you know, fanzine or whatever. And then you're kind of looped in. As long as you don't lose that, you can, you can connect and all that. But if you didn't have it or, or anything, and I'd never even seen it before, seen one mm -hmm. of them before. And then <clears throat> when I met Paul and Sean, they both were into the scene. So they ended up giving me, you know, a copy or whatever. And I started ordering and <clears throat> doing some tape trading as well. But, um, but yeah, it was like, it was like, wow, it was amazing, you know, and, and back then it was different, you know, you had to send, you know, put money in an envelope, send it, hopefully they get it, hopefully they send it back, you know, you never know when you're going to get it, it could take a week, it could take three months, yeah. Um, yeah. so it was a whole different game back then, but, um, but no, that was, that was actually really cool, because I was really looking for something more musically challenging whether it's faster more technical or you know whatever the the classic rock thing wasn't doing it so uh having this whole uh now kind of plethora of, of heavier music available to, available to me was was actually really cool totally I definitely dug hey, go ahead, Joseph. can i ask about uh, your impressions of like like some of the stylistic 
elements of death metal like the 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 vocal style the the down tuned guitars like how did how did do you remember like hearing maybe like cannibal corpse for the first time or like obituary or what was it and like what was your reaction to like that kind of like og death metal when you first heard it was it like oh i immediately like this or was it like whoa that's way too crazy that's gonna take some time that's a good question <laughs> yeah you know I think it kind of just evolved with me, you know, because I, I, it was a constant evolution. I was constantly living, uh, listening and getting to heavier, heavier, heavier stuff. So by the time I ended up, you know, crossing paths uh, with like Cannibal and, you know, Death and all those guys, mm-hmm. um, I dug it. I definitely dug everything they were doing. You know, I, was, I thought it was uh, uh, super cool. Um but I don't think I was shocked because it was just it was part of the scene. It was common. I don't know if that makes sense. That, no, it does. It's it's funny because our last guest was like a jazz guitarist who his first death metal wasn't until he was like twenty seven and you heard Defeated Sanity. Um so it's Which is an insanely crazy band, Jason. And and, and <laughs> Sick, you, yeah. But it sounds like you had a more like most of our guests we they hear Metallica then Slayer and then Death or whatever. So it sounds like it's a step by step thing for you. Um, but it definitely seems like there's a crossing over point where it's like the detune guitar has become a you know every everyone's detuning, everyone's doing the the growls, um, and that that's you know a lot of people it's it's either you like that or you don't, and some people can just never seem to get into it, and other people it's like once you get into that, everything else you you stop liking or whatever. So, you know, I I never did the detune guitars. I never uh yeah never played a seven string or anything like that. Um, and I I I see the the benefit of it, especially depending on the style of music you're playing. If you want to get that really low you know low tone, but Mm-hmm. For me, I, it was never um, a big interest, but but the detuning and all that came came pretty much way after I was already kind of uh, out of the the metal scene. Yeah, um, and so I, I heard it and could appreciate it, but I never really played played it or 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 desired to play it. You know, even playing now, coming back, I, I really don't care to play seven strings. I don't care to detune you know I, I feel like there's still so much to learn on just six strings i can i can barely play on six strings why do i want to add another one yeah. you know <laughs> definitely but, you that, know teach their own you know definitely of course all, all in like e standard or like e flat or drop d because those are kind of still like normal right you know like yeah for six string at least you know so how, for you jason do you always play an e standard or like do you pretty much always e standard yeah. I, I do yeah, too mostly. Yeah. Always the standard. It's just you know. I mean, it's again. Yeah. I mean, there are benefits, I guess, if you do want to detune, or I could even understand. You said people are playing in an E flat. Yeah, or just like you know, like, like up, yeah, yeah, like Slayer. E standard E flat, or or say like just drop D in standard, or drop D in right. drop D flat, or whatever C sharp. See, I, I tried to get one of those uh, drop D. Um, Eddie make it. Uh, yeah, yeah, where you just hit, you hit it, and it just it drops yeah. you immediately. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I was getting, I, I had a futon, um, futon uh, tremolo built, and mm-hmm. I tried to get the drop D on there, and I had to end up taking it off because it wouldn't fit with my guitar for some reason. So, so that I, I'm not against, but 
you know, it would be for certain tunes or for a certain feel or anything like that. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, besides that, I don't think I would ever really detune or go too much lower. Who was, so for me, actually, I have a, I have a question because I know that, you know, you, like back in the day, Cynic was the one, and now it's like a everyday, I have a headless guitar, like, you know, everyone's got a headless guitar now. But those Steinberg, Steinberger, those old ones, right? So the, yeah. those, who was that already kind of like a, was that a thing that was that you and Paul decided on back like then? That's like a you know I remember like a lot of the jazz players were using or some not a lot but the some Strand, of the jazz Strandbergs fusion. Or the... No, it was, it was yeah, the Steinberger oh, first, oh, and then Steinberg. Steinberg later. Oh, yeah. cool. The Steinberger, the Steinberger thing is. Um, yeah. Remember, yeah. I, I I mentioned looking into the guitar class and looking at the classical teacher and then looking at the jazz teacher. Jazz teacher was playing a Steinberger. Uh, he That's was right. actually playing the Steinberger that Paul played on the Focus tour. Okay. Paul ended up buying the Steinberger from from our. It's like the small body one, like a super small body one, or was it was was your Strat, you know, kind of Strat Strat. body one, and it was the one that had all kinds of green and different colors, like splatter paint or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's how we ended up getting into Steinbergers. Was um, we were taking taking guitar lessons at uh, at Miami Dade Community College from uh, incredible guitar teacher Dave Weisbrow, and. he had that that Stein, and we we trade guitars. You know, through the lesson, we trade guitars back and forth. And he he want to check out ours, and uh, we ended up playing the Stein, and and we both fell in love with them. They were just um, they they won. They played well. They were really comfortable. You know, uh, um, not a huge guy. You know, or whatever. I don't like big heavy guitars. You know, so they were really comfortable. They played well. The trans trem was was the thing that was actually really interesting was bending the chords in key, you mm-hmm. know, where they're not actually going out of Oh, that's out of right. Yeah, Paul that. talked about that. Yeah, the certain tremolo back then. Yep. Yeah, and and they're built like a tank, man. The thing, the the, the guitars are insanely strong. It's insanely well built. The old ones, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that the headstock thing was um, it was just by chance, you know, it was just by chance that uh, that that was the guitar that Dave was playing and we both ended up playing it and loved it. And then, uh, without having the headstock for me immediately was a, was a benefit. It's just smaller. It's easier to move around. You pack it into a little tiny gig bag, throw it over your shoulder, throw it mm-hmm. up in a, in top of a plane and take it with you, you know, when you travel. Yep. So how many was, inches was, is a headstock normally on a guitar? About five or six, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say at least five or six. Difference. Yeah, no. I mean, that's actually. I'm now. I got my Strandberg now because, actually, it was watching. I was standing beh- behind Paul, kind of on the side once, and I noticed the weird, the weird uh, neck. How it kind of like followed your thumb. It was kind of in that diagonal. The 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 C shape was diagonal, kind of. And I was like, what is that? Yeah, like a special thing. And this was like 2010 or 11 or something. I was right. like, is that neck, yeah. is that normal? Like, was, but like, uh, yeah. but I see the. I always see my Stram my Strandberg here, and I'm like, it just seems it's so light, and it's just like. Like out of all the guitars to like grab and like set up, I'm just like I just grab the easy yeah. one, <laughs> like so play the got, easy one. Yeah, yeah and they, they they sound really good. You know, they they, do. they definitely sound really good, and yeah, they're super easy and convenient. You know, and and tough yeah. as nails. So, so yeah, it was by chance. So Paul ended up buying uh, Dave's um, Steinberger. And I was still playing. I had an ESP M1 Custom that I had made, and I was still playing that. And Chris Kringle, the bass player that played with us on the uh, Portal tapes, mm-hmm. um, he worked at, 
she was it's in Milwaukee. It was uh, some uh, some music store in Milwaukee at the time. And he mm-hmm. calls me up one day and he goes, he goes, bro, someone just brought in a Steinberger and they only want six hundred dollars for it. And yeah. I was about to say, bro, I'll take it. He said, mm-hmm. it's in the mail to you. If wow. you don't like it, send it back. He says, if you don't like it, send it back. But I already sent it to you because if I didn't, someone would have grabbed it already. So he that's, said, that sounds like to me. That you know? sounds yeah. like somebody. That sounds like somebody named Chris Kringle would do. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. same joke. That's a good friend, yeah, and and yeah, that's another joke on him. But uh, but yeah, so he actually he said, if you don't like it, send it back. I'll sell it for you know for yeah. uh, way more than that. But uh, so he ended up sending it to me and only charged me the 600 bucks that the guy wanted and and i still have it it's sitting, sitting right over there in the room oh, man. but that's um nice. um but yeah that's how i ended up getting mine so it was it was just by chance that like i said we ended up getting to play the steinbergers you know from uh, our teacher we both fell in love with them we both got them so it wasn't planned um in any way but it, it's funny i guess it's definitely become a you know, old cynic focus thing, the headless guitars before they were as popular as they are today, I guess. I mean, just That's like the, the music is too. And the, just like the music has kind of caught on, you know, I mean, people were obviously way into it back then, but now it's like this resurgence of like this focus. People are like, oh, focus, focus. I'm like, yeah, dude, it's been amazing forever. You're, I mean, a lot of people are just kind of like, it's got kind of like that, oh, that it, like big story. It's like the Big Lebowski vibe to it, where like Big Lebowski, like bombs in the theaters. All of a sudden, it's the most purchased DVD ten years later. You know what I mean? It's one of the, got kind of that kind well, of story exactly, behind it. That's exactly what it took. It took about ten years before people started mm-hmm. to really pick up and, uh, and appreciate focus. You know, we had, um, you know, we had good following and people that uh, appreciated it when it when we were doing it, but it was not. It really took 10, 10 years before a, a, a bigger amount and, of people actually grabbed onto it. And we're that generation, dude. We're the the ten years later. We're the guys that right. weren't. We were born too late to experience it in the moment, but we were lucky enough to find it and have the capacity to, you know, understand what was going on with that record and know that still well actually at that time i had no idea that still you know going another 15 years 20 years later that yeah i'm 20 years later than that uh it still bears fruit for me you know when i listen to focus there's still so so much that i i haven't fully you know tallied on my tally sheet of what I can point out on focus, you know, and that's what it's I love about it. Amazing to me, you know, I, I am absolutely amazed at how well the album has done over the years or how much, you know, uh, cult, I guess, popularity it's, mm-hmm. it's gained over the years and, and that it stood up as strong as it has. I mean, we were just, we were just trying to play what we wanted to play and do our thing. You know what I mean? And, um, um, that usually is that usually yeah, is the answer that for somebody because you don't realize what you're making while you're making it you know yeah it's, it's just it's just in the moment you're you're creating something you don't realize what kind of impact it's going to have 
But um, I mean, you can have a guess with the impact that it's giving you so yourself as the artist, you know, if it's connecting yeah. with you, because we as artists, I was just talking to uh, uh, Cameron Argon, a.k.a. Big Chocolate. We've, we've been uh, in touch since he's been on the show. And that's one thing that I was talking to is like we can't all we don't always make things that we have a deep connection with, you know we yeah. may look back in our catalog and like I, I can connect with certain things that I've done more than others. And just to have something like that, it, it as an artist, I, I'm, I'm jealous and I'm also still striving to have it, you know? It's crazy. Like I still, I, it's, yeah, it's crazy to me that I'm, that I'm here now talking to you guys about an album that was recorded 30 years ago now right Jeez. yeah you know that's that's and, yeah. and i mean to me the the music industry uh has has not been fruitful for me as far as monetarily you know no matter uh right um which is which is fine but in in other words what i'm saying is is it's more valuable to me to have an album that stood up this well and have people still interested or still think that it was a really cool thing 30 years later, that's more valuable to me than the money I could have made or, you Most know what I mean? Definitely. And, Most um, definitely. For sure. and, and it's quite shocking when as challenged as we were, when we released the album and how long it took to take off uh, in the beginning, we would have never thought it would have, done this well you know like after our tour and uh, you know uh, some of the experiences we had on tour you wouldn't have ever thought that it was going to take off the way that it did or, or at least stand the way that it did you know mm -hmm. it's just amazing to me so uh, joseph you you go yeah, for it, bro i just just want to pile on on the focus nostalgia slash worship do it. do it um so i got the record of the cd when i was 15 in 2005 uh, and I had heard about it on the internet. So I was one of those, that's the first generation of people who were like by themselves kind of discovering bands like Cynic. And I, you guys, there was the, the website Cynical Universe that was active back then. And I remember getting the entire guitar tabs for the album in PDF form. And I had a guitar and I would just learn Paul's part and then your parts, Jason. And it just completely blew my mind how intricate the two guitars on the record are. And sometimes mm -hmm. it felt like I would just be like, how how could you come up with playing this while Paul's playing that or maybe vice versa? But what's going on, it seems like there's two different songs happening at the same time. Um, and it's stuck with me to, to this day. I still see Focus as the pin pinnacle of two guitar writing kind of um, point. Yeah. Interesting, metal. Interesting. Well, I mean, we wrote, um, it would depend, you know, some, some rhythms you would write or we, we would write Paul and I, and I would already hear the other guitar, you know, so you mm -hmm. would write both mm -hmm. guitar parts, you know, he did it and I did it. And then there are parts that um, I would just write a rhythm and then he would write his part to it, or he would write a rhythm and I would write my part to it. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the song writing structure, when we started structuring all the rhythms together, the transitions are where you get a lot of the, the intertwining, you know, of those parts. And that was through playing them 
over and over and changing this rhythm to that rhythm and put this one before that one and we you know get a uh like a chalky race board you know chalky mm-hmm. chalkboard and we would write all the rhythms down and you know we'd change it all around and um but yeah it, it was um i don't know it's just the way that 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 we wrote it wasn't um it wasn't necessarily intertwined that way to be technical or to be it's just you know he he would give me a part and i would write what i hear to it you know and and a lot of times when i write music i when i look at writing especially with another guitar um i look at writing in between his notes Mm -hmm. you want to fill the space you know the open Mm -hmm. space or or Mm -hmm. play when the other is not playing or um and if you can do a counterpunctual type thing that's another way uh, to play around, you know, the other players. And, and that was something that we didn't ever really want to do is play too many parts in unison as a guitar. I mean, that's just done. What's the point of having two guitars unless it's an impact moment in the song? Yeah. What's the point of having two guitars play the same thing the whole time? So mm-hmm. um, I think it's just the way we thought and the way that we wrote, you know, even if I wrote a counterpart part to a rhythm that I had wrote that I, that I had previously written, um, I would still try to play around the space and, you know, um, play around the other notes. And then once I give that part to Paul and the same thing vice versa that he'd give to me, we would take the idea. So if I wrote both parts, okay, Paul, this is your part. He would take the part that I gave him and then he's going to do his thing a little bit with it. And, you know, still we played, you know, pretty much still played the same part, but you put your own feel and your own vibe. We're always open to to changing things. Mm, and that, so yeah. that, that's how the rhythms that's actually so cool. would get stuck together. And then as we would play them hundreds of times, we used to play five to six nights a week, two sets a night. We would Damn. run through uh, before tour and while we were writing yeah. and you know getting ready for the album, we, we were always in the warehouse. Um, mm. But by, by playing it so many times, those parts evolve and you hear things and you, you okay, now I can grab onto Sean that's doing that kind of rhythm there. We can grab onto that and then Paul can grab it. So it, it was a constant evolution until we got in the studio and it still evolved in the studio yeah. um, for that matter, you know. That's yeah, a, and so, as far as like, you know, we had the, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Um, the, the textures, you know, to obviously that was like the first one that me and my best friend carrie we were like in our room just like finding these like these gorilla tabs you know like just like finding these tabs of it and we learned our own versions of it and you know we had paul on and stuff and since then you know we've been in contact and and, uh i decided to purchase the focus you know guitar pros i was like i'm gonna i want to buy those and and get all the parts that i kind of was weird on and just get them ironed out and they were so different i was like i was hearing notes or, or playing notes that were the other guitar player was doing i was basically just like a mic amalgamish of both guitars yeah you know that's how most people play it it's funny it's it's always interesting to me to watch someone play uh you know someone will say hey i'm playing paul's part on this song or i'm playing jason's part on this song and you watch it and it's always a mix mash of both of our parts and and i understand i mean it's it's the same instrument we had similar sounds and all that but um, yeah, I haven't seen many people be able to figure it out by ear, at least, or you know, um, who is playing what. That always yeah. seems to be the biggest 
biggest uh, question. Who's playing? No, we got, we got a friend. I had to text, yeah. text Paul to be like, dude, is this is this correct? Because my whole life is a lie. Because I've been like, <laughs> I've known for the last 15 years, I've been like, this has been my warm up, like the textures thing. And it's like, oh shit, they're mixing. Like he's playing that now. Like, ah, no. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, yeah. actually kind of like freaked out by it. And I was like, Paul, is this correct? He's like, yep, this is uh, what I made. This is how it was done. And I was like, oh my God. Like, yeah, well, I mean, it's you know, you've got so many, sick. so many positions on the guitar. It just depends where you you decide to play it. If you decide to play it in a, for example, just a higher position, then then the the whole picking is off, or the whole uh, fingering of the part Definitely. is off. So mm -hmm. it's hard. I understand. It's not easy to just figure it out and, and actually figure it out in the right range on the guitar. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Okay, I we we geeked out on focus and we're gonna do it again, I'm sure. But we skipped <laughs> over a bunch, guys. I want to know about your how so they, you were. It was him and demo. Paul together, right? It was him and they, he met Paul and they're doing the demo, like they're getting ready for the demo. Now. Yeah, yeah. So the like, next, I wanted to get into what was getting the next demo together because um, you picked up with them right after the '88 demo. You said so. Yeah what was yeah. how much were you involved did they have stuff already written did you contribute uh ideas to that demo as well oh yeah 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 no so from that point on it was a collaboration those songs were all once i joined in so so for me i i've always been uh someone that i can produce a lot of music i can i can write a lot of music and write a lot of music fast uh, ideas just if i get the flow ideas come out and i'll just start stamping out ideas so i always had a lot of music to offer so as soon as i joined the band paul and i would start you know working i mean at that time um we had van Earp, and van Earp would also contribute and then we had tony Choi, and tony Choi would also contribute um to the music as well but yeah at, as soon as i jumped in it was it was a collaboration uh from then you know until the focus album um so yeah so i contributed just as much as anyone else on those demos that i played on killer um yeah, yes. okay. and, I, lo uh, I love so, listening yeah, to those demos, um we started we started um jamming we started to play live and as soon as we got a few songs together that's what we uh put together the first demo that i had played on tell me about the first time your bro came to watch you on stage with cynic huh i think well so i think that um i think he actually came by the the rehearsal space okay. before he saw us live but then yeah he saw us live quite a few times and um my brother i mean he's still an active musician still an active player he's more of a I would say an R&B, funk type uh, type bass player. Um, so it was never his gig, you know. It was definitely never right. his gig. He would always, he would always, you know, he'd definitely support and show up the shows and all that. And he had a lot of respect. He was like, you know, I don't dig the the music as much, and I don't dig the vocals as much, especially demo days when we were, you know, just it was all brutal. all death vocals, yeah. Um, but he appreciated our musical ability and, and technical play, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. he actually, um, he always, always was like, and that drummer, man, that fucking drummer, he's like, he's amazing. So my brother actually did, um, he had done a, a bass demo 
of his of his own. It was something that he wrote, and he was he was really big into the tapping. He was a big tapper, mm -hmm. and um, he ended up writing this whole piece. He was going to go in into a studio and record it. He needed someone to play drums, and um, and I ended up telling him, "Bro, do you want someone that'll smoke on that?" It's Sean, dude. And he's like, "Really? You you guys wouldn't care?" We're like, "Why would we care?" You know. Um, of course, you know, I guess, you know, I guess people are weird like that as far as like playing with other bands or playing with other people. Yeah. As long as you were, as long as you were dedicated to our band, that was your priority. Go play with everybody, man. You know, I mean, there's nothing, we never had a problem with that. And, um, so Sean actually went in the studio and recorded and it was like this, uh, it was basically bass and drums, it was tap bass and drums. And my brother has a recording of it still i'm trying to get it digitized um because it's actually it's awesome and sean reiner kills on that thing and um mm. uh, did a great job for my for my brother but but yeah so my brother he he always appreciated what we did it just was never his gig you know yeah well and hey i, no, I just yeah i mean it. i just was one and, and for him to still say uh, respect you know that's the main thing right that's so the only yeah. thing you would want your bro to do is, hey, we're both musicians. You may not dig my shit, but check me out. You know, I'm doing it. Yeah, too. yeah. absolutely. You know, and yeah. I always supported him with his music. And um, we understood we've always understood that uh, we're kind of, you know, on different paths musically, which sucks because we've never really gotten to do anything professionally together. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, we've always had a big respect for each other and for each other's styles and playing and, well, and after, other, after hearing that i uh i i'm sure i'm not the only one to say that i would really hope that gets digitized because i'd love to hear that little deep cut of your brother and yes. sean on a track or something dude yes. that'd be crazy and, and, and actually for uh for for all the fans of sean reiner you know it, it would be a really cool thing it's a, it's a really cool um it's just one, I think it's one or two little tunes, you know, or it's just instrumental drums. Either and bass, way, but it dude. Cool. It'd be great to share. So, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm going to contact my brother and see if he's digitized it yet. Or, nice. Because nice. that would be Please a nice do, thing dude. to put out, you know, put out just in Sean's memory. Oh, for sure, dude. Right. I, I think that with everything that's happening now with the 30-year anniversary thing, uh, Sean's going to be in a lot of conversations more than he already has been since, you know, so um yeah dude I'll, i'm always down to get a little bit more of that guy get a little and bit more of it, anything from that era you know and the fact that he's your brother's on it too it's still in the family to me you know i'm yeah, like oh, yeah. shit. and it's back in the day it's it's pre-focused it's it's back in the demo days you know mm -hmm. um so you get to hear some some young reiner there but yeah i, I need to uh i need to follow up on that again with my brother and get that out that would be a wonderful thing for for all his fans oh and yes definitely i just wanted to uh shout out jason you've done a lot of really cool archival releases online over the last few years and every time you've released a video of some studio footage or uh pictures or anything i'm always happy to see it so i really appreciate you uh putting that out there for all of yeah, us yeah go follow jason if you're, if you're a big Nick fan if you're like want to see like the old school like he'll throw random stuff on there what he's doing currently it's like i randomly was like oh jason goebel's on facebook i started following you and stuff and 
seeing the things that you post, I'm like, every time you post something, I'm like, I'm so interested. And, you know, you'll throw, yeah. do a lot of throwbacks on there, too, where it's like you guys in the studio doing your forums or something, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Where I'm just like loving it. It's like great things to just all the monotonous scrolling on the on the, you know, the brain sucker tablet. Like you get actual good information and good um, good things from it. So, yeah, follow, follow Jason. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay, so now we're moving out of the, or no, we're still in the demo area, but um, the first demo was put together. You guys were doing shows and all that stuff, so how long before you guys decided to get stuff together for the next one? Jeez, we, man, the, the timeline and the dates, uh, um, I'm not sure how long because we we did the we would do the demo we would play like every every gig we could play play with anybody anywhere that we could we could play with and um, until we could get up enough money and write enough you know enough, enough music for the the next demo timeline I don't really remember but um, but really I mean what did we do we did reflections um, was the first. The second was actually recorded at, at Miami Dade. We, Sean, Paul, and I took a multi-track production techniques course, and basically it was it was you know engineering engineering a, uh, in a studio, and the ending uh, project had to be a song. You had to have a song, whether you got a band to play or whether you you know did it or whatever, but you have to record a song. And, um, and turn it in as your final project. So we all three took the course and we all recorded one of our songs and that's how we made the second demo was uh, pretty much recorded and engineered by us in the, in the college little tiny studio. Um, and then I think is, our third- Is that the 90 demo our, with Lifeless Irony and all that? I remember, Jesus, oh. it's been so long. Um, because what Burns, Burns did one of our demos. Yeah, that was the 91 demo. That was, a, so that had to be the 90, the 90 demo. It yeah, was the, that one, the life, lifeless the irony. One reflections, yeah. There you go. 90. There you go. Reflections so that, of the dying world. That was the cheapest way we could record a, uh, a demo was recorded ourselves, you know, so we ended up doing that. And then um, same thing, man. We just played with everybody. We played every gig. We played every show and back then you were playing shows with hardcore bands with you know right. i mean just every everything that anyone could decide to play with we'd go and play and um i mean we were getting a following locally you know we had we had a pretty good following we had a pretty good turnout you know people liked us and um and i think that's when we started getting recognition and that's when um you know, like the the opportunities to start playing with other bands came in, mm. like Death and Monstrosity and Atheists and Pestilence and um, all that stuff came up. It, what happened was was we were playing with so many of the bigger bands, and we were you know already friends with Cannibal and Death and um, Obituary, and you know the, the Tampa the the Tampa bands, and then we mm -hmm. had a uh, place here, Cameo Theater on Miami beach, they would have the metal shows 
and they got to know us as a band that would show up, we'd play, we were tight, you know, or, or at least, you know, professional enough mm-hmm. to open up for the big bands. So that's how we got to open up for bands like Sacred Reich and, you know, stuff like that. And, and that's where people started to figure out that we were actually pretty proficient at playing our, our instruments. And then that's where all the other gigs started to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, people, people just needed other guitar players or drummers or bass players, you know, and that's how um, Paul and Sean ended up on death. Choi ended up with pestilence and atheists and me with monstrosity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because we were, we were shopping our demo. We were trying to play, play everything. We had already gotten a hype and, we still were getting no interest. Everybody said we were too technical. I mean, you know, the, the old song and dance, too technical, not repetition, uh, not enough repetition and not memorable enough was, you know, a lot of the comments that we used to get. Wow. So when those opportunities came up to play with other people, we're like, listen, let's do it. It's only going to spread the name Cynic further. Yep. So we, we, had, we had all gotten together and we had a conversation about it. And we said, listen, Cynic is priority. So let's take these opportunities let's go play with these other bands but as soon as we get the opportunity to sign or to do to cynic that is the priority so mm-hmm. and that was you know the the case with everybody and um and that's basically what happened that's what happened uh, as far as that's how we ended up playing with all those bands and that's what finally got the interest of the record companies that we we're you know playing with all these professional bands we had our own band but we're not signed yeah and uh, reluctantly roadrunner finally took a chance on us so before uh, we go into that let's talk a little bit about your time with monstrosity okay i'd I'd love to hear about that all that because we are also big fans of uh monstrosity and imperial doom and general is one of the greatest florida death metal records to ever be created so that's awesome man yeah Dude, I, well, I really well, back that, and I mean that was the beginnings for a lot of people, you know. So it's just like, let's hear about that, dude. Yeah, well, it was a uh, pretty simple. Um, that that again was right around when um, I don't know who Tony was working with. If it was Pestilence or if it was Atheist first, I don't remember which. And then uh, Paul and Sean started working with Death, and. Yeah, so so Mark Van Erp, bass player Monstrosity, was was in Cynic, you know, so we were longtime friends. Of course, Lee, you know, has mm-hmm. been um, Lee was was here in Miami playing with all the bands. He was in the next warehouse with us. I forgot which other bands was he was playing with. And then when Mark ended up leaving Cynic, um, him and Lee ended up hooking up and started playing. And this is just, we're all in the same basic warehouse uh, district, you know, just a block away from each other here or there. Yeah. But um, so they had ended up just getting their deal and they needed another guitarist to do the album. You know, they had, they had uh, John Rubin and that's when um, George, you know, that's when Corpse came into the scene mm-hmm. and, um, so, so Mark basically, Mark and Lee basically came up to me and said, hey, what's going on with you? I know these guys are playing, you know, with uh, with Death and Tony was playing with whoever, you know. And they said, are you doing anything? I said, no, I'm not doing anything. Like, you want to play, be the other guitarist on our, our album? And um, I was like, hell yeah, let's go for it. You know, oh, and they're yeah. all great guys, you know. I mean, um, 
all great guys in that in that band and it was a great experience so so they were up in fort lauderdale which is like 45 minutes away from miami and um i think that's where they were it's over in fort lauderdale so i ended up just yeah going up and uh jamming with them they had like five songs done and i think there was three songs that i i ended up contributing to small rhythm parts or just little uh, parts and ended up helping with the uh, uh, writing of the songs and the structure of the songs as we were all jamming, getting ready for the album. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all brothers, man. They took me in and, and we started playing. And I remember when I first started playing with them, the first day I played with them, my forearm was like practically, uh, it was swollen and cramped I so fast in my life. You know, those guys, they hauled ass on that album. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, it was a fun experience. It was definitely, uh, um, a cool experience. They played, like I said, it was, it was excruciating speed. Lee is just a, a savage, uh, on the drums there. And then, and yeah, and working with, uh, with corpse was a lot of fun. He was, he was, a uh, just starting out in the scene back then. Yeah, how old was he? Time I had seen him, I, it was at the cameo, and that same place we were watching a show. I don't know who was playing, and I'm standing out in the pit, and I hear someone singing the song lyrics of the band that's playing, but they're more brutal. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I turn over to my left, and it's there's George, you know, corpse is standing in the in the middle of the. Uh, in the pit, just screaming out the lyrics, belting out the lyrics, the same thing, bashing and head spinning and crazy over there. And, um, I ended up meeting him through the scene and then ended up getting on the uh, the album with him. But, wow. um, but yeah, it was a real fun experience working with all those guys. And Do you remember uh, his neck being big even back then? I don't know if there's anything in particular you have a question about it or... or uh, his neck was it as huge as it is now or did it grow overnight? Over- over years what's oh, that i'm sorry no uh, i was cutting out again Fuck. Yeah, no no not you yeah. not you not to yeah so oh i was gonna i was gonna his neck his neck yeah. like was corpse grinder's neck. neck just as big back then as well well it got a little bigger over time but you know we're <laughs> we're, we're kids we filled out to begin with you know what I mean? yeah, we're yeah. All pretty thin but but for his body ratio I mean, he always had just this nasty neck, man. It was yeah. huge. And I think it's, um, I think it's, it's one, I'm sure the singing over the years has expanded that the way that he literally just belts out those, you know, those vocals. Oh, yeah. But dude. it's, it's oh, not yeah, just dude. the headbanging. I mean, he's just, he's mm-hmm. brutal with headbanging. Mm-hmm. And he would sit there back in the day when we were kids and there'd be what three or four bands that'll play in a show and he would be banging and had had banging the whole through all the all the show you know yeah i don't yeah, know i mean if you yeah. guys ever done some heavy head banging and head spinning and whatever oh, it definitely yeah, work. yeah, you know, yeah. You know yeah. I, mean? I don't know how yeah. people do it yeah it's like yeah so it's like, it's, it's like he's got a buff neck you know well no he's yeah. a professional he's got like i remember like seeing him i remember yeah. the first time i ever saw him like in person like in person to person like hanging out backstage area he was just in the back of slims just doing that by himself <laughs> like he was just windmilling yeah. by himself because it's his muscle it's like 
It's like an athlete stretches yeah. their hamstrings. What if you like found he's out? Stretching his neck. You know? What if you found right. out it wasn't his muscles, dude? It was literally just his vocal cords that have expanded <laughs> his neck out right. that way. It like morphed into muscles. <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy, but yeah, he's always had it. He's always had the neck, you know. And, and I like I said, I think the head banging is a part of it. We mm. we figured out pretty quick, especially if your hair's long enough, that head spinning, you just let the hair go and the hair will pull it around and you can like relax your neck. Mm. So that's why we, we head we used to head spin so much was it was a lot easier and a lot less painful after the show uh, than banging your head. And especially when you're, you know, you're busting out a show every night uh, mm-hmm. on tour, your neck starts to, you know, start to crank. But yeah, I don't think George has that problem. I think he just bangs right through it. Yeah. So one of the, oh, we got a question in here from earlier, but it was actually so when you know you're first starting to play shows, and I know that Cannibal took you on tour. We could talk about that in a little while. But um, what was like a lot of these death metal bands' reaction to Cynic when they heard Cynic? What was there kind of because it's are you saying locally when we were playing, or are you saying on tour? I mean, well, locally in your in your scene, I mean, in your area, there's a lot of death metal happening. So that's yeah. So like when a more death metal band saw Cynic, what was like some of the more, um, I mean, what were what were the reactions? There's obviously you know like I know Alex Webster was probably like fuck yeah, and there was a bunch of people that were like fuck yeah, and there was people that were into the fusion aspect of things. But like, what was the initial reaction? You know, it's interesting because as far as as the other fellow band members or or bands that were around at that time, um, they got it. They, Mm -hmm. they, you know, the the other, like I said, the other musicians and we're, you know, like like Cannibal and all those guys, they um, are playing totally different music than we were playing, but they Mm -hmm. totally dug it and got it. I mean, Barrett Barrett, uh, from Cannibal has been a friend, a long time, long time uh, good friend and um, he always super dug it and, you know, knew it was kind of our thing or whatever, but, but most of the musicians actually got it. And then, uh, just playing around the scene, I guess everybody was kind of used to it. I think, I guess we didn't realize what we had in the, you know, original death metal or nineties death metal scene that, that it's called now. Um, it was just normal. It was just, yeah. Other well, the, friends and other bands and it was just normal everyday stuff for us definitely um, so a lot of the musician side people people that were already musicians were like jesus what the fuck are you guys doing it's kind of like a like a big question mark over there like what is i can't even like yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they always they always thought we never fit we never fit in really with any anywhere we were never quite death metal enough we were never mm-hmm. quite you know and, and in our demo days, we were, because we were definitely more thrash, speed metal. Um, it was more safe for, for, the, for the main goal. Right. It was yeah, much yeah. safer, yeah. and it was much more uh, accepted. And I think that's how we ended up getting, getting popular. And then when we switched to doing, you know, more of the, the jazz-based, you know, focus-style playing, um, we got mixed, you know, definitely got mixed results. Again, the, our friends and musicians, they, they thought it was cool and, you know, all supported us and all that. But um, uh, but the scene, you know, some of the people in the scene had a hard harder time with, with the transition, I guess. That makes sense. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just had a question about what, what you were doing besides 
music at the time? Did you work some jobs? Did you like what yeah. other stuff's so, going on in your life? Back in the in the cynic and the focus days, I actually I was a dog trainer. Mm. I was the guy mm. that would oh, get wow. and get attacked by all the dogs. So <laughs> I started I started working with dogs when I was uh, about seventeen. So yeah, right around when I had met those guys, and um, I was kind of an antisocial kid, and I, I definitely loved animals, and I ha had come across this opportunity uh, to get a job at a kennel, and I thought, oh, cool, working with dogs and feeding them and walking them, and I walk into this um, kennel, and I start talking to the owner, and, and he starts showing me a video of uh, French ring sport and Compagna and Shih Tzu, and, uh, all of the sports where the people are in a suit getting attacked by a dog, <laughs> and I'm going, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I was always an adrenaline junkie, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, okay, that's pretty cool, you know, and he had asked me if I had any martial arts background, and I did. I, I did judo and, and taekwondo growing up, and, and mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the throws and a lot of the movements are similar to feeding a, feeding a dog a bite to a roundhouse <laughs> kick or certain kicks. So he'd asked me that, and I goes, okay, well, you want to, uh, do you want to try it? And I thought, I thought, okay, if I say yes, he's going to say, okay, I'll get the dogs, come back tomorrow, we'll get you suited up. I thought maybe I have a window I can get out of this. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'd be interested in trying it. He goes, okay, let's go. And I go, right now? He goes, yeah, yeah let's go. I got a dog out there with two jumps on him on you. And, um, so they, he did just that. It suited me up and uh, sent the dog on me. It was a leg biter and told me how to move. It was a huge adrenaline rush. And... Um, I ended up working there. It was, it was Kendall Canine. Abel Montejo was the uh, was the owner of the uh, place. I ended up working there almost ten years. Wow! And I ended up uh, everything from obedience to advanced obedience, agility, drug detection, bomb detection, uh, uh, bomb detection, cadaver detection, to all the protection, to the civil protection, the sport training. I mean, I I got super into it. Wow. Um, but you know, I, I made pretty good money for a seventeen-year-old kid. I could, right, I was yeah. making pretty good money, and that's basically how I paid for everything, as far as instruments, as far as any college, as far as warehouse rent for the band or any. Um, I never had any parental support monetarily, so I, I started working really. I actually started working when I was like twelve years old. Oh wow, um, Jesus! Just, just my father was like, "You want money? Go get a job." I was like, oh, "Okay, you know, I guess, as long as you sign a work release, it's like I'll sign it." So I started working very young, but, but yeah. So actually, through the the cynic days, I mean, I'd go play a show, and and um, show would end at four in the in the morning. You know, by the time we end up getting out and get back to the warehouse, or by or, ten o'clock, you're getting eaten by a dog or something. <laughs> well, by seven thirty the next morning, I would yeah. actually go for the show to the kennel. And then I had a, uh, we had a morning, a sport class, a ring sport class on Saturday mornings at 730. And I would go get attacked, you know, all day. And so, I mean, I did, I did all different types of training, but, um, but the bite work was a lot of fun. And uh, we, we worked for two police stations. So a couple times a week, we had a round of police uh, dogs that would come out and we would keep them up for their uh, police trials and all that. So anytime uh, the suit uh, break and you actually got like, hurt yeah. yeah 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 i got i got um i was we had a dog named clip and the reason he was named clip is he would uh he would come in for an attack 
and he would leave the ground about six feet before you know he could reach you and he would catch you in the shoulder whether it was if you're fleeing he'd catch you in the back shoulder if you're if you're facing he'd catch you in the front shoulder and if you didn't know how to take him he'd airplane you you know and bring you to the Whoa. ground and he was young he was maybe a year year and a half you know old or whatever he was going through our whole training program and uh and one day we were we were out training we had a, a guy visiting from france actually a french trainer that was visiting philippe clement if i remember correctly and um long story short clip was all the way on the other side of the field and he was tied uh with a leash a leather leash and we had a puppy on the other side of the field so you're talking about a 70 meter field that you could you know send yeah. a dog across mm -hmm. so we had a puppy tied on the uh, other side of the field near where i was sitting and we we're actually taking a break so the owner and uh felipe the french trainer they ended up going inside they were going to grab some some uh, water and some stuff to drink to bring out and i was taking a break so i had taken off the suit jacket and i just had the pants on so i'm sitting there and little charlie the puppy over to my right is wanting some attention so one of the things that you would use is a is a um, bamboo baton and you mm -hmm. would slice the bamboo baton and it would rattle when you shook it and then when you hit the dogs it would it would bend and it would give so it wouldn't hurt them but they would see the movement and they would not fear uh the movement of getting hit mm -hmm. and so it was part of the training so i'm sitting there charlie was just kind of wagging and wanting some attention so i grabbed one of the batons and i shake it over and i walk over and i feed him a leg bite so he's he's tied on a post and so imagine i'm sitting there and he's biting my uh biting my thigh mm -hmm. and i'm just sitting there with the stick rattling the stick and rubbing on him telling him good boy good boy and um having a good time with the puppy well clip is all the way on the other side of the field and i didn't realize or we didn't realize he knew if you can get a leather lead if they can get it in their back uh, incisor or incisor teeth, however you say it, mm -hmm. they can cut through it like a like a pair of scissors. Oh, so oh, he, he heard the stick and saw me playing and saw me, you know, uh, getting bit, and he chewed through the leash and he bolts across seventy meters at me full speed. <laughs> oh my so, god! So I'm sitting there. I don't see him coming. I'm working with the with the, the, puppy, uh, yeah. with the puppy, and he comes bolting. Well, apparently. As he comes flying up the field, uh, the owner and the trainer come walking out, and they just see Clip like buzzing, you know, across the field, obviously going for a bite. And um, so, of course, he comes right up, he flies, he catches me right in my uh, left shoulder, and time slows down, you know, just stops for a second. All of a sudden, boom, I'm leaning over and I look and I'm seeing a dog head, and I'm also going, okay. I got the jacket on right now, you know, so it's a, there's like everything slows down when that happens and the impact from the hit shocked the puppy, the puppy backed off. Mm -hmm. And at that point I look and I realize, okay, I got a, I got a dog on me. So when the dogs, they bite, they shake like a shark. Yeah. So if they, if they go for a high bite, um, they will hang usually until their feet touch the ground. And as soon as their feet touch the ground, that's where they start their shake and they start to really tear and do some damage. So he, he's on my shoulder. I see him. 
and I just raise up as high as I can on my tippy toes, and I'm tiptoeing backwards trying to keep his feet from touching the ground. And right as his feet go to touch the ground, the owner and uh, uh, trainer, other trainer, run up, yelled his name. He didn't. They didn't. He didn't see them coming, and shocked him out, and he let go. Wow, Jesus. So, so and another funny thing is that his his right canine was broken. Okay, so he came in when he caught me. His right canine only scratched me. His left canine dug a, a hole in my shoulder, but just scratched it. And it was his two bo bottom canines that punctured me real good in the underarm. Um, so I was lucky that that one canine was missing, and I was lucky that I basically could keep him off the ground until the, the guys got there and got him off of me. Yeah, so dude. He gets him off of me, and I, I'm looking, and I see the puncture holes, and I'm like, um, geez. So the, the owner walks into the house, walks out with a uh, bottle of alcohol and Q-tips, <laughs> and he goes, it's a dog bite. He goes, um... You probably got hair in there or something in the puncture wounds. You want to do it or you want me to do it, you know? And I remember I was like, just give it to me. And I, you know, had to dig it, you know, into the, the puncture wounds and at least clean it out until we could get to the yeah. to the hospital and have them uh, stitched I up. I think I got couple stitches, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But so what, how old were you when this happened? 17. Oh my wow. God. This is right at the beginning. This is pre-focused, all that yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so then the other interesting part of that story was um, I go to the doctors. We get cleaned out, you know, and, and uh, stitched or whatever I needed to get done. And we come back to the kennel, and I get ready to go home. And understand Cliff was a young dog doing exactly what he was trained to do that we did for fun. When you right. train the dog from a puppy, it's it's play. You're rubbing them, good boy, bite, 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 rubbing them, they're biting, and, you know, it's it's a, a play thing. So he didn't know he had done anything. He didn't do anything wrong. You know, he was doing just what he did or whatever. So it was me that had to overcome the fear of getting attacked again. So I remember I came mm. back to the kennel, and I'm like, okay, I'm stitched up, I'm good, I'm going to go home and whatever. And Abel goes, well, don't forget your dog. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, Cliff is your dog now. And he gave me Clip that night, and I took Clip home. Clip lived with me for like six months until we sold him to the Bahamian, uh, Bahamian uh, Police Department. Ended up buying him, and he ended up having a good life with a, uh, a good wow, police officer dude. over there. But yeah, to overcome the fear, I actually took Clip home. He slept with me in bed, and then I ended up being the handler for him. And ended up, uh, I was the one that would handle him and demo him. And, and of course, I still took bites from him to overcome you got to overcome your fear of those things right if, uh, right if you want to so did forward. they did they give you clip because of that specifically yeah yeah because he bit me and they didn't give me they they gave him to they gave him to me to live with me yeah until, i didn't mean when i said give you i didn't mean like yeah yeah they, now. yeah specifically because yeah specifically to to help me overcome uh any anxiety or any fear from uh, getting bit again or anything like that, which wow, I, I really didn't have. And I, I didn't have any bad feelings towards Clip. I loved the dog, you know, and, and we were mm -hmm. good buddies and yeah. um, we were training partners to begin with. So 
Um, I didn't have any fear of taking them home with me or whatever, but it was something that that uh, the owner was like, it'd be best take him home. He's going to be your dog. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, what, was, be, uh, what was the breed? What was the breed, Jason? What was the breed? Uh? Belgian Malinois. OK, so the, yeah, the Belgian Shepherds that all the oh, police sorry. and military <laughs> are using now. That's that's we were we were actually we were ahead of the game. We were bringing Belgians in um, from France and from Belgium. Like I said, back when I was, I actually went to France with Abel. We brought, I think we brought 17 pit bulls to France and we brought back 15 Belgian shepherds uh, from France. And that's back when I was 17, 17 wow. years old as well. Wow. So wow. when I got bit was maybe 18, maybe okay. 18, but I mean, you know, close enough. I was just thinking about, before we move on from that, I was just thinking like that, if that went bad, like, there's a timeline where Jason Goble got his arm fucked up and he couldn't play guitar again. You well, know, bro. I mean, you, you the suit that you wear to to be attacked. It's a jacket, so your neck and your head is exposed. Okay, and it's usually a little lower jacket, mm -hmm. and your your hands and your feet are exposed. And I've had them. I've had them get me here. You know, I've mm -hmm. had them get me underneath. You know, the shirt where they're still. They had their their. Uh, bottom canine was under the jacket next to my belly. I've had, um, I got lucky because one time I actually got my hand in one of the, the dog's mouths when he was coming in for a bite. And thank God this was a dog that I trained with every mm -hmm. day. He was one of our demo dogs, Tok Lu, Belgium Shepherd as well. And he had, he had felt it and he just grazed me. He, he didn't fully chomp because I, I probably would have lost one of my hands. But yeah, I got really lucky, man, because I was out there, I was playing guitar at night and getting attacked by dogs. I mean, I had an eight-hour job every day I was doing, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, I was I was pretty uh, pretty fortunate, but I enjoyed it. You know, it was a lot of fun. It was definitely exciting and yeah, um, exciting you, job. So you said it, you did it for 10 years, so you were obviously still involved in, that was your career. Check out my headphones right now, guys. <laughs> I fucking still have not replaced these things. They're just fucking, they still work. I can still hear. Um. Yeah. I would say, I would say at least, at least eight years I was, uh, I was uh, training. So what would happen is I would, um, whenever I was in town, I would trade. If we like when focus came around and when the tour came around, I left on tour and I came back and I ended up going back and training uh, for a while again after that. Um, so it was just like, um, you know, it was a job that was always there. If I if I was yeah. in town, mm -hmm. that's huge for a musician. They'll take you back. It's like a you can go on tour yeah. and they'll and they'll bring you back. That's huge for a musician. Yeah, especially like yeah. touring and stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. So, Mine was uh, called Circuit yeah. City. But anyways, <laughs> long <you> story. <laughs> a little safer, a little safer, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. No, I was gonna cool. say uh, so. But the intense. Yeah, the intense, like, the mosh pits or crowds, whatever, you're, like, probably looking at the crowd, like, I need to train, I don't know how to make this joke exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, you're like, like I'm prepared for this, like, you're, I know yeah, how to handle this. Exactly. Nobody's biting me right now. Yeah. I'm chill. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, um, you know, uh, pretty much us cynic boys, you know, especially when we're young, we're, we're pretty boys compared to all the other guys out there mm. in the other bands that were tattooed and you know big burly guys uh, a lot of you know um 
but yeah, it's funny because I was taking a lot more pain and doing a lot more brutal stuff than, than most people were, you know, we would oh, yeah. get people that come out and they, you know, these big tough macho guys that would come out and go, Oh, I could beat your dog's ass or whatever, this and that. And we'd say, okay, you want to put on the suit? And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Watch grown men scream like a baby. Okay. I mean, like a baby, you know, because the whole key with the suit was to, to get the dog once he bit to try and slide it off. And with mm -hmm. movement, when they recorrect the bite, you're constantly trying to slide them. But if they get you, I mean, I've had, I've had uh, muscle the size of an egg crushed and it looks like a half an egg sticking out of your arm or sticking out of your leg mm -hmm. from when they, they actually get you. I had teeth that got through the suit, so I had puncture holes in my in my legs because when you get into the high-level training, the thinner the suit, the better you can move. So so when you get into the, the competition sports training, the guy getting bit, his job is to take points away from the dog and try and make the dog fail. So yeah. you sacrifice uh, the thickness of your suit for mobility. And you, mm -hmm. you get cut, you, you get cut up, you get, you know, you get bruised up and you get beat up and, um, but you sacrifice that for the, for the ability to move fast and move like a, you know, like you're free without a suit. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, yeah, it was funny. Uh, I was taking a lot more pain and I mean, I was an extreme kid. I was into motocross and martial arts and speed death metal and getting attacked yeah, by dogs. I, mean, I, like, <laughs> I had the adrenaline thing when I was a kid, you know? That's, yeah. that's rad, dude. So, uh, um, and you're doing all the extreme sports that like the motocross stuff during Cynic and stuff too? The the motocross I did when I was younger. Okay. Probably, I, was, okay. I, and I, only, I only raced, I raced pro, pro class from like maybe 12 to 14, 15 max, you know? But we, we actually lived on the outskirts of Miami in the East Everglades is what they used to call it. So I was a mile down a dirt road. So a bicycle or whatever didn't work. So um, from about 10 years old on, I was on dirt bikes or ATCs or um, mm -hmm. whether I was racing, you know, uh, motocross or not. I just we lived on on bikes out there. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, but, yeah, that was just a little bit before Cynic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that actually really fleshes out the story more than I expected to get from asking that question. And funny, oh. uh, Reinert came out and took a bite. Um, I had a, a couple friends, Reinert, um, uh, a good friend of ours, Jose Rodriguez, Lisa Armstrong um, came out and took a bite. But yeah, whenever I love your I love your terminology, dude. They came and took a bite. Or earlier, yeah, I, heard yeah. say, I gave I gave him a leg bite. I just gave the I gave the puppy a leg I, bite. I guess it's so common. It was so common. I did it for so many years. But yeah, just let someone take a bite is what we would call it. And um, I remember Reiner. I told him, I said, okay, the dog's gonna come in. He's gonna bite you right right above the knee. Um, when he does, you know, you want to kind of move and and see if you can keep your leg out of his knee. I mean, out of his mouth. And whatever you do, don't fall, because if you fall, they can just, yeah, just crunch down on you, and and it's gonna suck. You know, you're not gonna die or anything, but it's gonna <laughs> suck. And so Reiner um, ended up taking a taking a bite, and they, the the dog bit him, and he started spitting 
in a circle to keep the dog off him, almost was like airplaning the dog around to, to keep him from being able to come in for another bite. But um, but yeah, yeah, he was he was actually the only member that actually came out. But uh, back in the day, if you thought it was cool and was interested, I was like, come on out, man. We'll send a few dogs on you and have some fun, you know? Uh, it sounds interesting, dude. It really it's does. Fun. It's an adrenaline rush. It's something that yeah. uh, you gain a lot of respect for what a dog can really do. You know, people don't realize. That's and, the closest you know, human gets to, like, choosing to be attacked by a predator dude you know like yeah you could go out into the woods and just wait for a bear or you could go hang out with jason goble and he'll sick a predator <laughs> back in the day yeah we used to love it and uh, and it was a safe way to get it but but you gain a lot of respect if, if uh if a trained dog especially that's why we trained them for the leg if they get you in the leg they're going to get a, a major artery you're not going to run far. You're not going to go anywhere. You know what I mean? And um, people don't realize what they can do. And then you want to come out and experience it. It was always fun to see people and just see their eyes light up because, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you can't explain it to someone. You got to be there with the dog, you know, so, tearing at your leg or tearing at your arm to really enjoy it. So like, so like, like how fast can a dog just immobilize somebody like with no padding, you know, like, you know, obviously in a crime or something that's sicked on some, or in the military, whatever they use them for. Like, I mean, you know, they can just bite your yeah, leg. Yeah, they, they, they can get you. I mean, you know, so if they get your arm, that's, that's why people yeah. stop training, training for the arm. You know, they get your arm, you can, you can punch or you can target mm -hmm. them. You can see here and go, here's your arm. No, it's not. You can make a miss, you know, so. Mm -hmm. That's when they started targeting full body, you know, and now the legs, they can't run. The torso is a good spot because it's hard to miss. They can come in and aim for the shot, but there's not much meat there to grab unless they go mm -hmm. for the gut, you know? So the leg ended up being the more popular. Um, leg, yeah. Yeah. Major artery and stuff. Take you out. But now when you go for a, a dog that's going for a kill, and I know we're yeah. way off music no i love this fine i love this so much if you have a dog that's actually going for a kill so so we would train these dogs and then they would join the police force and then they would get a real bite and as soon as they got that real bite you saw a difference in the dog and you saw a difference in the training and you saw a difference in their mentality and their attitude and it's like they understand they finally put all this work that they've done as a kid in training together and they realize what they're doing so um, we would get into civil training. So civil training is where you take the suit off, you muzzle the dog, and you let okay. this dog attack attack you. Oh, wow. And you can see where they're going to target. You can see what they're going to do. You can run. You can you know act like the villain, do all the stuff like that. So I had a situation where um, we had a dog that chased a civilian into a back area one of our police dogs and it was almost like a back utility room that he got in he got in the dark so she had sent the dog in and the dog didn't bite the dog was was confused or you know for whatever reason didn't feel right and didn't bite so in training it's a normal thing you know there's all that's why you train the dogs in all different environments so she brings the dog back this dog was was uh, a belgian shepherd again I mean, just stout muscle. I mean, this was a specimen of a dog. And the person that was in that utility room was a 16-year-old kid. So I was so grateful that this dog did not 
attack this kid. But um, so we set up the same scenario. We got a utility room. It was dark, whatever. Who you got in there? Me, lucky guy in the in the in the room. They send the dog in to attack, and we did the muzzle scenario with this. And when they come in and they attack you and they're muzzled, they're they're they're, they're hitting you because they're coming in to bite, and it's like someone punching you. You know, it's right. like they'll catch you in the face or they'll catch you. So this dog comes in and it goes for it, it comes right in, shoots for my neck, hits me in the growing. I mean, in the stomach, and then goes for my growing. Okay, so that is a mature, adult, trained male dog that is actually going for a kill. Because that's they know if in the wild they go for the neck, the gut, or the growing. So uh, okay. <laughs> chimpanzee depends on the face. scenario, depends on the dog or whatever. But but if the right dog gets you and and really wants to do some damage and you don't know how to defend yourself, um. They can kill a man uh, very easy. I mean, it was, it was common to keep a gun on the field. You know, mm -hmm. you kept a gun on the field. And I remember there was, um, when we were training, there was some competition going on, I, I think in Belgium or something like that, a Compagna uh, competition. And one of the dogs ended up attacking someone and they had to shoot. Uh, they had to Ooh. shoot the dog and the uh, guy died because the dog bit him in the gut. Jesus. Bit him in the gut. Oh, my oh God. My they God. have a gun and the dog still kind of got a, got a victory. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, well, yeah. They didn't get the gun out in time. They got the gun out to, to get him off the guy, but he didn't, he didn't end up surviving. Just animals in general, like I've had, yeah. you know, like obviously just like I have a cat of a cat, but like if there's been times where I'm just like feeding him a treat and he's like, he bites me all the time, like fucking around. But I, I fed him a treat before, and he thought it was the treat, and he hit my finger, threw my finger immediately. Like, didn't even, like, yeah. bad enough. Like, I had a parrot before. You know, parrots were, like, if, yeah. if they're just nibbling yeah. you, like, parrots yeah, could crush dude. those yeah. Brazilian walnuts. Like, <laughs> it's, it's like 1,300 yeah. pounds to crush one of those, like, a pressure. Just easy. Just like, Brap. like, you know, if, if they're, like, just yeah. nibbling you, and it, like, kind of hurts yeah. a little bit, like, they love you because like, they could fucking go directly through you easily, you know. It's funny that you mentioned that. I used to socialize parrots as well. Oh, nice. Um, I, I got into a lot of animal things, but That's through the killer, dogs, dude. I ended up working with, we had people from the zoo, so I ended up uh, good friends with a couple people there, like the elephant keeper, the gorilla keeper, so I'd get to go, uh, uh, I would get to go in the back and hang out with some of these crazy animals and uh, and feed them and then there was a local aviary and i was um my girlfriend had had a parrot at the time and we had gone by to get something for a parrot and they had a bunch of baby um uh, a couple african grays and a couple cockatoos oh, yeah. that were there and i just mm -hmm. walked up and i started to pick them up you know and they uh, was petting them and playing with them and the owner came up to me and she was you work with birds I go, no, actually, I work with dogs or whatever. And um, she said, wow, you're really natural. And um, if you want to pick up some extra work, I was always hungry, you know, to make money, you know. Um, you want to pick up some extra work, you can help socializing some of the parents. Oh, cool. So I know what you're talking about on the biting, bro. It's They're savages, yeah. the, the amount of pressure that they have. So you take them and you put them in a bathtub and you get uh, sticks, and you go under, rub under their belly, and you get them to step on the stick, step on mm -hmm. the next stick, yep. step on the stick, slide an arm in there, slide an arm in there, and you eventually start to socialize them. Um, Definitely. 
but I used to do that, and I got bit by a couple of those guys too, man. I, I'd almost I have scars all of my yeah myself from my yeah. period back in the day. Yeah, Damn. when they yeah, decide to actually cut through, there's it's just like oh your skin that's easy to get through. Like <laughs> like I can yeah. easily get through this. Yeah, and they're they're moody because sometimes they give you a little totally. kiss, all gentle, and sometimes they they bite you you know so yeah yeah and that's one, one thing about parrots not to get down in parrots bill but uh <laughs> but like one thing one thing i mean they, they usually like i watched a documentary on them. a lot of people like i want a parrot you know people like all the kind of like more i don't know people that just like think they can just have whatever they want they're like oh, i would like a parrot and then they uh, like um, two months later they're like oh it's too loud i would like to not have a parrot anymore and there's these sanctuaries that take all these parrots in because people don't want like they think they can handle it but they can't Cause those things, it's horrible. No, yeah, it's I know it sucks. It sucks. It's like yeah. a, it's like, yeah, it's like a, it's like an object to them. And yeah, like, these just, things oh, are like, dude. they love, like, usually they only want love like one person. Like they're you can't just owner. like, yeah, exactly. So they're you can't just owner. like, it's not a cat. It's not a dog that you can just pass around. Right. Go, oh, can you have my dog? Have my cat? Like these things will rip their feathers out. If they're after their first person that they're like all about is gone. They'll like, they're really, yeah. The thing that people don't realize is even um, I had I had a couple different parrots, but a, a Nande conure, just a small, mm-hmm. you know, or, or a sun uh, sun conure, they live 30 years. Yeah. You get into mm-hmm. like the African grays are up in, I think, like 40 to 60. And then when you get into the big parrots, you're talking 100 plus years that they live. No yeah. shit, dude. Yeah. I don't know. 100 that. plus yeah. years. Yep. People don't realize Multiple that. 80, 100 years. And wow. so, so they usually end up get passed to a family member that doesn't want them or, you know, it's so, I mean, if you own a parrot, it's, it's a, it's a life commitment and it's a, um, Holy it's really shit. sad that, that those sanctuaries have to, have to exist because that's what happens. And they bond yeah. to one person yeah. and they outlive them sometimes depending on when they get the bird. And that um, just sounds yeah. like those types of animals shouldn't be allowed to be pets, you know? There should be there should be some sort of of uh, regulation or something. Yeah, I agree. You know, I don't think anyone should just own it, or they really should should be educated on what they're getting into. Uh, right. I had a yellow naped Amazon. It's the it's the second smartest behind the African African gray is the smartest, and we had like the second smartest one, and it was because of a friend that was, you know, having health issues and stuff, and we took him on. And he luckily bonded with us, but. Um, Man, that, yeah, he was moody, man. I'll tell you that much. Oh, yeah, they're there. Yeah. Moody as can be. Yeah. One minute they, they love you, one minute they hate you. They're, they're interesting uh, interesting animals. Definitely. All right, to pull this back from the, the parrot dog paradox. Yeah, <laughs> I love it, though. I love it. That's, Sorry, that's, I love it. On, that's how we got started is what I used to do when I was in Cynic. But, yeah, that was, uh, totally. that was and, my job. But it sounds like it's just as much of a passion for you as it was cynic. So that's what we want to hear, dude. I, I did enjoy it. Yeah, I did enjoy it. It's it was tough. It's a it's a 24 7, 365 day a year business to own. Like for Christmas, I would actually go over and uh, help clean the kennels and help feed the dogs as my gift to the owner because wow. You know, it's they 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 gotta get fed every day. Doesn't matter holiday. Doesn't matter you know what's yeah. going on. So it's it's an interesting business. Um, it's a business for a young man, but it's it's a it's a lot of fun. It's it's an exciting. You don't uh, wake up in the morning and think, "Geez, I gotta go sit in the office or I gotta go you know push yeah. the pen or something." Like that. You get out there and you have fun. So and you connect with 
different species and and even though you guys don't speak the same language you end up bonding and making friends and all that we hear about chip 30 years later you know i love that yeah 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 that's uh it's yeah it was it was a it was a fun part of my life for sure one of the one of the funner jobs that i've i had uh growing up the other thing i did when i was with uh Cynic was I, I I was doing locksmithing. I was an apprentice as a locksmith. That's wow. another random uh, bit of information, but um, locksmithing we is actually something pretty interesting to me, and I would love to be able to pick locks. Yeah, and it's 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 uh, changed a lot, but the actual picking is is pretty similar. Like you get into some of the high end Medecos and some of the other locks that have come out. Um, the old school picking is a lot harder, but yeah, I used to pick locks. I used to open cars. I used to break into houses when people locked themselves out. So what happened was, was we were training a dog, a German shepherd for a locksmith. So he could take it around with him when he was doing night calls and stuff like that. So one of the things that we had next to our kennel was we had an avocado grove was, was a five acres of avocado was, was wow. next to our, our training field. So we knew the owner and we said, hey, do you mind if at night if we throw a couple dogs over the fence and we go train in the avocado grove, you know, because you got trees, it's dark, you know, it's different terrain. And so we'd go out and we'd train at night over there sometimes. So we go to uh, to train this guy's dog and we decide to go over to this avocado thing and we, we pull up to the fence and I start throwing stuff over the fence and I'm getting ready to grab a, uh, we brought a couple dogs, grab one of the dogs and throw him over. And he looks at me and goes, what are you guys doing? I go, the fence is locked, man. You know, we're trying to get in so we can go train. And he looks at me, he looks back at the van. You see, you know, it was A1 Locking Key was the name of the, the company. Julio was the guy in, mm -hmm. I'm a locksmith. So he gets out, gets out the picks and he picks the lock right there, opens the gate. We go and we train. And I was amazed. I was like, holy shit, that is so cool. How do you right. open lock? And he explained to me, you know, the cylinder and the pins and the springs and you, when you rake it or whatever. So he showed me, he gave me the lock and I actually raked it, boom, and I opened it up. And he goes, wow, you're pretty natural. Do it again. And I did it again. He offered me a job. So I ended up going and um, working at him with nights. I would take call and I would run around town and, uh, you know, break in, open to you know, open cars that were, uh, people lock their keys in there or, yeah. um, you know, if people get locked out of their house or, you know, stuff like that. So I, I did, uh, locksmithing at night also when I was training and that was actually more dangerous than the dog training back in the day <laughs> in Miami because, um, we had some tough parts of town and that's when, you know, all the, the gang banging and the gun shooting and all that stuff was going on. Right. And, um, to give you an example, I would get a call in the middle of the night on uh, the radio and would say, JJ, you know, we got a call. You got a car to open up. Bring your gun. Bring your dog is what he used to tell me. And that's when I knew I was going to a bad part of town, you know, and had to open up a, Jesus. a car. Yeah. So um, I ended up going on one of these calls and it was a, a nice lady that was... Um, locked out of her car. So I pull up behind, I've got my dog in the, in the car and uh, I leave the window cracked and I, uh, I walk up, she says, this is a car, whatever. And okay. So I grab the, the rod, I grab the slim Jim and I start to go to open the car. 
So as I walk up and I start to, to start working on the window, I feel her lean against me. And she put her back to my back. Um, and I'm kind of like, what, what the heck's going on? I said, ma'am, is everything okay? She goes, yeah, everything's okay. She goes, I'm sorry. She goes, this isn't your neighborhood. You're white. They'll drive by and shoot you if they see you. So I'm going to stand here. <laughs> um, I ended up opening her car and, and went about it. But that, that was kind of the common thing, too. It was a real tough part of town and um, very interesting job to do working nights in Miami back in the 80s and 90s, you know, or in the yeah. 90s. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I've so, definitely seen the, the the cocaine cowboys and stuff like they were they were showing about Miami and stuff like back and just how like it was ran by I don't want to say cartels but like just gangs that had like all the money. Yeah, it was you know? a tough it was a tough town. I remember growing up uh, in Miami. You um, like when you'd walk down the street, you really didn't look people in the eye too much. You look them in the mm-hmm. eye, you're looking you're looking for trouble and and they were real happy to give it to you and everybody's packing and yeah everybody had cocaine back in those days and um yeah it was it was it was a a tough city it's a lot better better now that's for sure yeah definitely jason's the most interesting man in the world dude (laughs) (laughs) gotta make a movie about this so i mean we're gonna go back into the as as pre-pod we were talking about this but i uh I'm going to do it for the people just because I want to say this out loud. I always talk about people always ask me my favorite solo. And I, it's, it's always how could I, it's uh, Jason solo and how could I. I'm always like, I've probably said that 20 times on this podcast. It's like, how could I? And then it's comfortably numb. And then it's, you know what I mean? It's like, that's like the. You the were saying that when we were in our early 20s too, dude. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. We would be at the, the Thunderdome and you'd be like, how could I solo, dude? Yeah, just like the way it, like, I mean, just the, I mean, you said, and also too, we were talking, we were talking, talk more about it in a second, but like, because you already told me all the things, uh, some of the things I want to say, but um, as far as just how it like, brought a fresh, like, like energy to the song and kind of like, it's kind of like a build up and a, it's like a total, like, a, I just think of like a, I always think of whenever I hear an epic solo, I think of like an eagle just flying around, just like, you know, like it's got that in the beginning of the solo. It's kind of like a, it just has this kind of eagle, someone riding on a dragon kind of fucking. And but then it like takes you through, it takes you through like ups and downs, and there's like a build up, and then it comes a little down and well, builds up. That, that's how I've actually always viewed soloing. You know, so a song, in essence, a song takes you on a on an adventure or, or tells mm-hmm. you a story. You know, and I've always felt that the solo. Should do the same you know solo should take you somewhere it should it should lead you on on its own journey and and have a path and have either a build or a climax or a, or a descent or you know something um it's just got to go somewhere that's why i i've never ever considered myself in any way a shredder or anything mm-hmm. like that you know like paul was always a faster player and um i always uh saw myself more as a melodic player but um, when I approach a solo, I always want, want it to, to take you somewhere. So so I will usually start it softer and will build or, or will peak and then drop. And with How Could I, How Could I actually had, um, to me, a classical feel to it. That mm-hmm. ending rhythm, you know, the, the ending uh, rhythm that Paul's playing that I'm soloing over. 
And um, so I look at it counterpunctually a little bit, you know. Um, but yeah, with with all the solos, they they should they should build and either climax or build and and but it has to go somewhere. It has to tell a story. And the interesting thing about how could I is that was probably the easiest solo I ever wrote out of oh, all the shut solos. shut up. I, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and, and nothing, to do, uh, not yeah. to, nothing to do with, with technical. I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah. really, bro, uh, come on. Okay, I'm not sure which guys here play guitar or anything like that or not, but. I'm, but, I'm the best guitar player on the show. <laughs> <laughs> on upside down. Perfect, but still, it's not a technically hard solo to play i think um you know i mean go play uh, i don't know pick anybody by holtworth you know whatever those guys are all shredders but like kirk um, yeah. <laughs> yes yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah so so it's it, i don't think it's it's that technically hard but um it tells a story and it it actually it, it really fits in the music so I one always want to see a solo that's going to build and it's going to take you somewhere. It's going to tell you its own story. And I don't like solos that play over the top. Anyone can shred over the top. You have to grab what you're playing over. You have to use that foundation. It's like the paper for your novel. You know, you, you got to use mm -hmm. that foundation to your benefit and to really work with that and build around it. Um, and have it literally go somewhere, not just shredding and everything over the top. So that's why you'll, you'll always see with a lot of my solos that they start pretty mellow. There may be some little fast flurries, but it's more about taking you somewhere and telling a story. And that's the reason that I say How Could I was probably one of the easiest solos that I ever had to write was, um, I don't know, it's just something that clicked with me with the rhythm, something that was in the air that night, you know it what I mean? It, you said it flew out of you, right? It was something it, that just it, kind of flew out of you. It flew out of me in the sense that, yeah, it was, it was um, as soon as I had the first note, that first note told me where the, where the next note was to go, and that next note told me the next note to go. It's almost mm. like it just it wrote itself. Yeah. And it's funny, um, Eddie Van Halen, uh, said something and, and I, I, I believe that, you know, all the creativity, everything is floating here in the, in our, in the air. Mm -hmm. It's all around mm -hmm. us. The creativity is always there. Right. It's right. if you can lock right. into it and if you can, can channel from it. And, um, and I do remember when I was writing that solo, just, there was something there. There was something in the energy. There was something in the air. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is flowing. You know, this is, it's, I'm not even having to, really struggle i mean most solos i struggle with i'm mm -hmm. i'm really more of a, a of a rhythm and a songwriter than i am a soloist you know mm -hmm. um, yeah. but yeah in, in that sense how could i yeah was actually one of the easiest solos that i uh, that i wrote um <coughs> and i had no idea i had no idea i mean paul's a great player you know and um got some great solos but it seems like how could i it seems to be one of the most popular solos on that album yeah. um, and yeah. i was blown away that it was me that did it i would have figured paul would have done something because he was you know much more of a shredder than i was but but again i think it's the storyline and the, the i think what makes that solo is so cool is, is where it takes you in the storyline again i don't think it's that technically hard to play in comparison to what people are playing these days you know what i mean but mm -hmm. it, 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 same thing like you said um 
what was the other favorite solo you said? Pink Floyd. Um, a comfortable enough. There you go, man. I mean, yeah. right there, yeah. it's feel. feel. It's it's, it's yeah. taking you somewhere. It's taking you mm -hmm. on a journey, and um, so that's how I think a solo should be. And I love the I love the, the how like Paul comes in too. I mean, you guys. I mean, you start with your solo, then Paul comes in with his like Roland kind of like uh you know like the MIDI kind of feel. Is, is that is that you or him? I, I thought that was Paul, right? Uh, uh, no, can I? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, after like it kind of like comes. That's me on, on the synth. Yeah, that's, that's oh, shit. Yeah, that's me on the synth. <laughs> right. So what that was was I I had written the solo, and then yeah. they wanted to do a repeat you know, kind of a, a pattern fade out like we did. And um, it, same thing, that had a classical feel to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought, you know, kind of counterpunctually, I wouldn't say it's actual counterpunctual, but uh, that was kind of the go. And something that repeated but changed every time just a little bit, but still kept the same feel. Um, but yeah, that was actually, that was uh, that was me on the, on the guitar. On that so here. sick god that's yeah literally you've sick, probably brought the most like you know you know those excited tears where you get like it's not like you're you're not like yeah you're not like oh like, you're it's not so like, it's not like a joyous movie, that you're you like, cry yeah there's so much adrenaline and everything's so yeah. high that you're just like you're like why is my eyes all wet like you know like <laughs> that 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 i mean comfortably numb that and those have brought like the most like like um not artificial intelligence. Jesus Christ, I've been drinking a lot tonight. Um, like uh, most You're organic, almost it, organic, organic, yeah. organic feel. I'm like, I don't know what to do right now. And I'm just like, my, my eyes just get all wet. And I'm like, what, why is this happening? I don't know. Joel's like, like Chad GPT writing me a guitar solo. It's amazing because um, there was a, a, a friend um, that I have on social media. or um, And he had actually sent me a video of him with tears coming out from mm -hmm. um, one of my solos on Portal. I forgot which, on the Portal tapes. Um, but he had said it had moved him so mm -hmm. much. And and it, yeah. that was, to yeah. me, was like the biggest compliment that anyone could ever give you. If you could bring someone to that emotion, yeah. uh, again, yeah. back, uh, back to that solo telling a story or taking you somewhere, or taking you on a journey or whatever, mm -hmm. um, that's like, the biggest compliment you could get and that's when you go okay that's probably a pretty good solo you know yeah, I mean, right. for me I too i mean I my uh play. yeah that's awesome i mean my, my uh like my girlfriend's a she's a vocalist she sings she's all about lyrics like lyrics are the most important thing for her and and for me like i i make up a feeling or an idea or something through the mute like musical is my lyrics you know so i'm like I don't do yeah yeah i, I, I mean Sometimes a lyric, like in a pop song, like a Depeche Mode song, I'm like, yeah, I feel what you're saying. But like when I'm like dealing with like, I'm a big Prague guy too, so I'm into Prague and stuff. But like sometimes when I see what they're doing and and how it changes the moodiness of like, like an Opeth song, where it's like down and up and down and up, and it's like bringing you down, making you like feel a certain way with a riff, and then kind of like bringing you back up and then taking you back down. And it's like I don't even know what you're saying, but like the music is just is guiding me it's like i'll read the lyrics later you know <laughs> like, yeah. so it, it's interesting I, I don't do lyrics in the sense that i mean of course if you heard a song you know a hundred times or whatever you're going to learn the lyrics regardless but mm -hmm. um i never really heard words i always heard lyrics as another melody 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I hardly ever know any lyrics to the song. You know, I couldn't tell you half the lyrics on Focus or any of the stuff on there. Never made a difference to me. It was more how it worked linearly along with the rest of the music. And I heard it as a line. And to this yeah. day, I, I still, I still never seem to retain lyrics in music. I still hear it as another instrument. I also make up and, my own lyrics because, like, I I don't know. I'm so like dyslexic with lyrics because I'm not. I like, would love to watch transcribed Opeth songs by Joel. Oh man! Oh no! I, I make up my own <laughs> lyrics behind it because I'm like I don't know what you're talking about, but uh, the, the way this makes me feel, I feel like you're saying this. <laughs> like that's, it's, it's like I'm not like focused on it. I know, but it's it's a hyper focus for a lot of like uh, Real people nowadays. Man, I'll sue. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's like how important lyrics are to people you know and yeah um yeah. and i understand and respect that and especially for your common listener that's maybe not a musician that's how they tie into it um but yeah I, i've never been able to follow lyrics or i could care less what they're singing about as long as the the music was right for me what if what if, it was, what if it's your favorite music ever like it's the best thing ever but they're like fucking kill fuck, all those dogs that dogs, they that dude. <laughs> like I mean, I, to be honest, to be honest, I didn't care. Um, actually, uh, it's funny because I've listened to a lot of things that were wrong. I mean, what was that old Agnostic Front album that just had pretty much every racist, racial topic and slur you could ever think out about? But yeah, it was yeah. an amazing album, you know, <laughs> to uh, N.W.A. Uh, Niggas for Life. That was one of my favorite <laughs> albums for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean... I guess as long as they're not really killing the dogs, I guess if you want to say it, uh, I'll let you have your freedom of speech, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, that's awesome. No, totally. That's, yeah. That's All right. Great. So well I, I want to hear about uh, during the focus touring yes. times, how, how that felt for you. Um, Cause had you guys done anything like, long scale before that we used that to record? do we used to do self-financed east coast tours mm-hmm. we would we would get a van and a trailer and we would set up shows all the way along the the east coast up to new york chicago milwaukee um and we would just do those on our own you basically uh call up every band you know and say hey can you set up a gig and you know we would uh make our own runs and we we did that played all the way up and then went to like the New York music seminar and tried to give out our demos in Manhattan at anybody that would take a demo. And that was a waste of time, but you know, we were young and trying. Um, we did the same thing, played all the way up and back um, one time and we ended up uh, played all the way up. And then at the top was the Milwaukee metal fest. We played the metal mm-hmm. fest and then we came, uh, played back down and we did that with um we did the Cynical uh, Creation tour. That was one of them. It was Malevolent Creation and, and Cynic. And we mm. traveled all the way up and played all the way up and through, through Buffalo, where they're from, and ended up staying at Phil's house for a while. That was mm-hmm. fun. But um, um, so, yeah, that was, that was the only real, I guess, touring experience before we actually left on tour with, with uh, Cynic. How was the, I mean, I mean, I, I know that, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the stories, like my brother was at the Berkeley show in 94 with, you know, uh, cannibal cynic. Oh, and really? like that. That was a good show. Yeah. 
He was on uh, acid. But uh, <laughs> but also, too, he, uh, yeah, there was an earthquake that night, too, by the way. There was an earthquake there, and he was on, he was, like, freaking out, and that was, like, one of the weirdest nights for him. So let me tell you a story about that. Yeah, um, yeah. We were, <coughs> we were there at that gig, and after the gig, we ended up at a hotel room. Yeah. I don't know if it was for us or whatever, and um, Steve DiGiorgio from Sadis or Testament. Mm, or, shout you know, out. However many, you know, good old Steve-O. Um, yeah, yeah, but Steve was, was hanging out in the uh, hotel with us. We're all, you know, eating shit after the um, show. And all of a sudden, I feel something. I feel a rumble. <laughs> and I was like, yo, is that an earthquake? And Steve goes, dude, that was some kid running down the hallway. He goes, trust me. <laughs> if that was a fucking earthquake, he goes, my ass would be jumping out of the window because we're on the second floor. <laughs> he says that, I swear to you, no more than 10, 15 seconds later, another rumble. He's got a foot on the window. About to open the window and come out. And that was that night. I remember that earthquake. Holy yeah, so you felt shit. the you felt the what what is it the the precursor type thing that happens? Yeah, felt a little yeah, rumble. That's, and, that's California, yeah. dude. Yeah, yeah. It really Jesus. is. I, I remember oh, yeah, I, I, plenty I'm of sorry? earthquakes as a child, dude. And that's just what you naturally get used to like steve's like that wasn't an earthquake because we're so used to like little weird shit that happens like did right. our house just shake for a little second oh no it's chill <laughs> right yeah I, I felt uh an earthquake then i felt an earthquake in um in portland oregon and then i felt felt an earthquake in italy and they were all small Mighty, but it's yeah. very interesting feeling it's a very sinking feeling in the sense that if you don't have anywhere to go or if you're up six floors or if you're you know you're trapped yeah you feel very you feel very trapped and uh mm -hmm. it's kind of scary like I, I say you guys have earthquakes what the the mid uh part of the country they get tornadoes and we get hurricanes yeah well, yeah, yeah. At, at least we know the hurricane's coming Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah i mean this, this last guys, couple of weeks we've gotten here we've gotten we've gotten hurricanes the last couple of yeah weeks. but what he's saying is that we can't predict our earthquakes dude. no i know i know yeah. i mean i mean i, I was in the 80, it was 89 1989 i was at i was a five-year-old i was putting it was down the street here i was putting away like you know the toys for the end of the day and all of a sudden like i, I feel shaking and i look back it's at so, the part the structure of the, the playing structure and it's just like a blur it's like yeah, I can't even see it. And it's I'm so like, funny that like, you yeah. remember it and I remember mine. I'm like this in front of the TV on my yeah. stomach, watching Nickelodeon Channel 27, <laughs> and all of a sudden I just feel like my whole face and everything is just doing this the whole time. And that I was like, "What the fuck was that?" And I look up, and my mom's like, "That, that was an earthquake." And I was like, "Okay, well, fucking hey, dudes, on like." <laughs> man yeah i couldn't imagine no it was like crazy about that too it was like well i mean the after the aftershocks were the crazy part so like it was done like we got went through the big part i remember like you know i was doing my thing ran and went on her table like bookshelves were falling it was crazy but like my dad came pick me up all freaked out went back to the house and there was like aftershocks that were way bigger than anything you've ever felt constantly for like i want to say like two days they're just like every 
few hours, I'd be like, you're like, it's again, it's coming. You know, it's like, I'm sure every time you freak out, like it's going to, oh, no, I, I, uh, I have this thing too. It's, uh, I was uh, dating a girl a while ago and we had one, like a four point something, maybe, yeah, 4.5 or something. And I just straight up didn't even know what was happening. And I was like, we were like hanging out and I ran out of the room, just left her. (laughs) left her in the dust like, <laughs> and i was i was down like it was upstairs somewhere so i knew that i was upstairs and i felt this thing shaking i think i like maybe it was like it said earthquake and like a weird like but i i was downstairs and in the parking lot before i was like oh shit like i didn't even i came to and was like i just bailed <laughs> it was like the spider flight response that just took me over and i ran and i was gone and now i'm like after that experience i'm not gonna do it What's that? Are you are you still dating her? Oh, nope. No, no, this was no, 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 no. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Huh? Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think yeah. Nowadays I'd be like, all right, let's fucking get a plan. I mean, the person let's I'm dating now is from plan. here now too. It's from here too, so they she would understand exactly. Like, all right, yeah. is, we have to both do something. Like the person the river, like from the fucking Bay Area. That's still a bad one, but still they weren't from like they didn't have to deal with my childhood thing that i had to deal with as a kid you know it's like this it built in a a fight or flight response that i couldn't i didn't even know i was doing until i was doing it you know but anyways yeah earthquakes and i have dreams about tornadoes and hurricanes all the time too like that's like my fear is hurricanes and tornadoes but like i live in earthquake place so i never have earthquake my fear is alien uh alien shit dude (laughs) <laughs> that's like my that's my nightmares as an adult is a full-on sci-fi blockbuster fucking alien invasion right in my I think that's, that's more that's more project blue beam guy than uh <laughs> yeah. than an actual alien they made it in my head in my to my dreams in my, dude oh in your <laughs> dreams you're dreaming that oh okay Jeez. yeah like my <laughs> adult your, nightmares, your rim. I, my rare adult nightmares usually are a, like alien invasion dreams dude they and they're like blockbuster fucking hits dude like these guys should go in my head right now they'd have good fucking movies right I was now say, yeah you should write a script <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Two days ago, I had a I had a, a dream about trees falling, and I was like in this forest, and trees were falling, and we had on the forecast rain, sixty percent chance, and it turned out to be like eighty to ninety mile an hour winds, and I'm living in the forest, and trees are just falling. Like, and I was like, Am I a psychic now? <laughs> I feel like I tapped into that because because the first we've had three big storms that have come and hit us. And like the first one was like not what it, I mean it, it messed up the beaches and stuff, but it didn't mess a lot of people up. But um, second right. one was like kind of as bad. It like <laughs> a lot of landslides and stuff like that. It was bad. And then the third one they didn't even talk about. They're just like, yeah, it's gonna rain. Like you guys know what it's all about. Now it's just rain. Now it's like, and then it was eighty to ninety mile an hour gusts that were just taking out trees. <laughs> and like, there's my friends that are living in town now. They have had no power for four days now. They're like still like. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's like literally it did like the most damage, and they're just like, yeah, it's rain, whatever. You guys get it. I just it by love now. the self-analyzing question of, am I psychic now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was kind of freaked out because I knew that there was rain coming, and I was like, well, we've I'm a little PTSD because we just had two major storms, and it says Tuesday or Monday rain, <gasps> and then I had dreams well, all night about trees falling, and I'm like, am I onto something? I hope way, not. Yeah. I'm the same way with hurricanes. You know, I, I went through Hurricane Andrew. Oh, wow. 
and that was a was a pretty big ex experience. And from that day on, if I know a hurricane's coming, I mean, that night I'm sitting, I got a pair of, uh, I'm in a pair of jeans, I got shoes on, I'm ready to run on a second's notice because uh, when they hit, it's like the house just explodes. When when we got hit by Andrew, mm. um, the hurricane shutters, we're sitting there, we heard a big crash. Um, and basically we, we had all walked out, everybody in the house walked out to the center of the house. And right there, first hurricane shutter just goes boom, 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 flies away, next one flies away, window blows out. Jeez. Um, we start, you know, putting doors over the, the windows and we'd nail this door across one window and go to the next window and that door would blow off. And, um, finally the roof started to tear. So we were standing at a window. I was holding a sofa in front of a window and I look up and where the ceiling, you know, where the ceiling meets the, uh, the wall, it started to crack along that ceiling line. And then it started to crack going back. And that's where you see the, the roof starts to bounce and pull off. And we're sitting right there at the window. I'm watching the roof start to bounce. So I, I tell everyone, run to the bathroom. Everyone runs to the bathroom. And um, me and, and a gentleman that was, they got evacuated. So uh, a family was staying with us, some friends of ours. So myself and Bill were the last ones to run for the bathroom. And as we're running, the, the, the roof tore off. Jesus. And the way the house was, you know, sectioned where you have, you know, one roof going this way, one roof going that way, the bathroom was was right in here, and we dove in, and, and this whole side came off, you know. Wow! But, so we, you've been in the house while the roof is coming off. Yeah, yeah I was just running yeah. for the bathroom. He was, watching just that he was just telling you the the hurricane shutters were ripped off the house, so they're called hurricane shutters, and the hurricane ripped them off the house. <laughs> God. Ripped them off. I mean, like if they were Dang just like man, a paper, paper holding the thing. Great. So yeah, so it, it actually uh, tore, tore two thirds of the house. The roof was off. We all ended up in the bathroom, and we were there for two or three hours before yeah. it passed because. The way that the, the, the hurricane, you have the eye, um, it was spinning in this direction. And we we were actually going and looking at the mirror backwards. We were going through the, the hardest part. We never got the eye. We just got the whole brunt of the of the storm. Yeah. So we stayed in there for two or three hours. And you'd feel that the pressure change as it passes. And um, I swore it sounds like a jet engine. With a locomotive train going right next to it, with a giant taking a tree and breaking a tree is what it sounded like right out the, you know, what of the house. Fuck, but yeah, so man. so since Andrew, if anything, if I have a hurricane coming or whatever, I'm up in arms, man. And that's, yeah, that's what was that? Um, I mean, actually, Ricky Avocado or Ricky? <laughs> that's not his real name. Was that the one that happened right before the? Oh my god! Oh my god! We have a special guest. We have a Paul Maskell. Hey. Hey. How's it going, buddy? How What's up, dude? Hey, Paul, dude. What's Is going on? Is it noisy down, as bro? fuck or what? I got I got my fucking Bluetooth in, but I'm in a fucking loud bar right now. We <laughs> no, we can hear you, dude. Good, good. If all you right, can hear cool. us, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. We were just talking about. So I was actually want to ask a question. He was talking about a big hurricane. Was that the hurricane, like Andrew, that you dealt with in '92 yeah. that Paul talked about? Yeah, yeah. Same, same, same hurricane. Ended up. We were, we were. Um, we had a bunch of right. We had a bunch of equipment at my house at the time, and you guys came and took it and. 
picked it up. Yeah, well, you lost game. everything. You lost. And everything. then I lost. Then I lost Our everything. Our shit was yeah. at fucking Chuck's house. Remember? Like Sean and I had right. to go up to Chuck's because we had gotten off a human tour, and so I didn't have anything other than like a guitar. That was so, it. Yeah. yeah, we had basically all our shit. We had just gotten off the human tour. We were back in Miami. Sean and I basically had to go up to Orlando to get our shit because it was fucking thankfully okay. But Miami was wiped out, and Jason ended up fucking holding the ceiling of his bathroom with his grandmother. <laughs> it was fucking. He lost everything, you know. It was, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, that's great. So, so you, uh, you and Sean actually came out and picked up all my guitars. That's what it was, and. Cleaned yeah. them up for me because they were soaking wet and everything was destroyed. The yeah, city was yeah, wiped that's out, same, man. That's the same hurricane that, that we were talking about uh, earlier. Jesus. Damn, that's man. crazy, man. God damn. Paul, okay. where are you at right now, Paul? Hey, dudes. Hey, hey what's up? What's, what's up, up man? Anthony? Hey, Joel. Hey, what's up, man? Um, what up, I'm brother? actually in San Francisco right now. I'm right next oh, to a cool coffee shop called Progressive Grounds, but this is actually a lesbian bar in Vernal <laughs> Heights. Okay. It's, uh, yeah. it's called nice. Wild West or something. It's like an old saloon. What's I've it called? Pro- I've probably been there. My cousin Outside lived West. in Vernal Heights for several years. Oh, oh no okay. shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so a buddy I was having dinner with who's here and another buddy's coming um we he he made me dinner and stuff. An old friend of mine, so we were just hanging out. And this is like in his neighborhood. So yeah, yeah. dude, awesome man. I'm stoked yeah. you stopped by, man. So Most since stuck. we got you, yeah, dude, man. it'd be cool to talk about what it was like in the studio together with the refocused sessions. I'd love to t- see both you guys talk about it. Jason, I know you were in, you sat in for a little bit of that, like. What was it like rehashing all that stuff and re like sculpting it, but in a sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, it pretty much it wasn't like we did. There was that much that we could really do. It's more digitally enhancing everything and bringing out, um, you know, mids or lows or anything like that. But wouldn't you say, Paul? It wasn't as much. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is Warren, he took everything and rebuilt it from the ground floor. But basically, we were trying to stay out of its way because the performances are so thick. Everything is so good. With If you just bring up the faders, everything's so on fire that there wasn't a whole lot to, like, do other than just, yeah. like, EQ it better. And, and he also had to get the low end right because the, the way that Scott... Kind of tracked the drums especially was he kind of sucked out the low end which was a very signature thing to do in the 90s because everything was so muddy but i think he learned a lot making our record and what something warren commented on is if you listen to the trajectory of the songs the drums change the sound of the drums keep changing because scott kept modifying things because he was like learning yeah, he was like, holy shit, Sean plays with finesse and dynamics, and he's he's a different kind of drummer. And so he he actually made a lot of moves that opened up his eyes because he wasn't doing just extreme death metal with fucking sound replaced and triggers. And you know what I mean? It was like yeah, yeah, super yeah. finesse and dynamic. And so it was so, but he had to recreate the low end because there was none from the original tracking and he used Sean's drums to do that. So 
one of the big differences with this remix is like the bottom. The, it's like the the where it sits is like it has all this like weight as to where Focus Original, which I love how it sounds, but it has that 90s stamp. It's very kind of thin, you know what I mean? The, the, the state, that everything's very kind of, it's just, it's all stripped of that body because it, you're trying to get clarity, you know? But I think we figured it out in a modern way now where you can kind of still have all that low end and still have the clarity of the top end, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much, pretty much it is, um, like 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 Paul said, there really wasn't much that changed with levels or anything. Everything is still, if anything, it was just adding the 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 right tones and the right uh, mids or whatever. Um, yeah. And just making it clear, basically, it's it's the same yeah. thing, but you can hear a lot more. There was even things I heard that uh, Reiner was doing in on the cymbals, and I was like, oh, I totally. Yeah, like you know, there's all so, these details that you don't hear on the original record, like a lot of cymbal stuff and bass stuff and 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 the guitars, like we loved our guitars then, but we wanted to like defizz them a little and make them a little bit more like punchy and clear and stuff. So it was like little things, you know, just you guys are um, uh, you're reminding me of Mahavish New Orchestra's remasters going to 180 gram vinyl people talking about brand new things that they've never heard in the mixes previous to that and, and and how you guys are influenced by Mahavishnu at that time and all that stuff. I'm like, this is so fucking cool to hear that this is happening right now, just yeah. like yeah. it did for Mahavishnu, you know? Yeah. Same thing with them. It wasn't there back in their day. And I'm sure once they cleared it up and, and, I'm sure you could hear all kinds of different minute, you know, totally. minute. and it's, and it's so funny, beautiful. like I said, we heard stuff that we've never heard before. So yeah, I yeah. Listeners, oh, dude. I mean, oh, if you isolate the drums and bass on focus, which I would like to put out at some point, it's its own world. That yeah, it's like you just take the guitars and vocals out, and that shit is so sick. It sounds so rad. I'm, I'm, I'm just like, like blown away right now because now I'm thinking about the fact that like, okay, you as Cynic created Focus, but the technology that was used to record that music has not made it that fully um, available to you even as the artist after it's recorded. So it's yeah. being... It's being like uncovered archaeologist style, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, Thanks to the we're technology. Like, yeah. It's like an we're anthropologists, like <laughs> we're digging yeah, through wait. the dirt again, dude. That's you know? funny, man. Totally. <laughs> and it's true, and it's just little minute details, but it's those yeah. little things that stand out. You know what I mean? That you're like, oh wow, I never caught that. So yeah. Oh, dude, there's so many crazy things Jason and I did guitar-wise where it's like, holy shit, I forgot, like, even, like, weird outtakey things, like, that, like, we were like, oh, yeah, that thing that we didn't use and that thing, and, you know what I mean, like, so it's, um, yeah, a lot of experimenting happened in the studio. I mean, we found that record making it, you know what I mean? Like, we had, we didn't, we showed up prepared, but we also had we were prepared with our four tracks, you know, in our little home studios, like the difference is, and I was talking to Jason about this earlier. It was like, 
you couldn't demo things in here detail like you can now with a fucking, you know, a, a Logic or Pro Tools rig or whatever you're using. Like back then you had four tracks or eight tracks and you couldn't hear shit clearly until you got in the studio. So then you get in the studio and it's like, holy shit, that guitar part, that's how it sounds against this guitar part with this vocal and this bass line. And suddenly it sounds like a different piece of music. It's like, what the fuck is this shit? (laughs) So we were figuring out as we went and some things didn't work. Some things were just like, we we hit brick walls and we were like, holy shit, that doesn't work, bro. You know, and we fought, you know what I mean? We were fucking, it was a journey, man. My question yeah. to you right now, Paul, is why didn't you go take a bite? You know, go get, go. A a, oh, he doesn't, I forgot. He wasn't here for it earlier. From the dogs in the training, dogs Jason too. was doing, we, Jason was telling us about how he trained dogs. Oh my God. I know. Jason's yeah, a fun which what say that where'd he go? Uh, no. oh, <laughs> here, dude. Put him on the spot. Oh, I know man. he just fails. Like, right, right. <laughs> I can still hear the background. <laughs> you can still hear him. Hey, hey, no, I literally just hey, got hey. a call from a friend who's coming. Uh, no, so Jason is very humble about this, but Jason's a proper dog whisperer. He like totally. fucking—he's the original dog. You learned whisperer. that tonight. Dude. I swear you, learned dude. It. That motherfucker, like, he'll meet a dog and immediately will like communicate with it. It's trippy, man. Like he has a gift with animals, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, I—we all love animals, but Jason was like fucking skilled, like ninja shit, like. And yeah, that was his. That's how he survived when we were kids. He was fucking paying the yeah. fucking yeah. training Joseph, dogs. It was Joseph had yeah. the great question of what he was doing, uh, you know, to make ends meet during all that. And that's when we got to learn that Jason is a dog whisperer, animal whisperer. Legit, in bro. Yeah, animal whisperer. Really. <laughs> I was I was telling him that. Uh, Remember Sean and uh, Jose came out and took fights, and then one time Lisa Armstrong came out and took a fight and all that, and uh, they were yeah. wondering why you never, why you never did. I wonder why. Uh, you know, maybe I was scared. I don't. Know. <laughs> I remember I had a cousin who had fucking pit bulls, and I'd be fucking he was too. all about making them mean and shit. So I had some, but I had dogs not, as a kid and stuff, and yeah, you're. I don't know. I mean. No, I mean, so I don't know. I mean, it was one of those things. Maybe it was just a timing thing. I was just never had. That was yet. like, a, yeah. Well, Jason really said he was. He started doing that because he was an adrenaline junkie, you know. So you got to really be ready to be attacked by an animal if you're gonna take that gig, you know. You do. Yeah, you have to not be afraid. I mean, I'll even tell you a story when we were doing the um the the refocus stuff. We were doing it, you know, at our friend Stephen Gibbs' studio, which is like where, you know, it's like Gibbs' house in Miami Beach. And and he had a dog that's like, you know, it's been kind of, they've been trying to train this pit bull, basically. And Jason and I went for a walk with it. And he immediately, like, understood it, knew what to do. And this dog has been like a thing with these people, like with, with Stephen and his wife forever, like trying to figure out how to get a hold of it, you know? And Jason was like, I know exactly what this dog needs. <laughs> wow. like, Fucking, can I pass your number along to them? You know, it's like, 
Yeah. That's cool, dude. I mean, that's kind of the thing that I, I tripped on was you can, how, how you make a connection with a different species that doesn't speak your language, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How do you? Yeah. No, Jason could have like a fucking a Twitch on that shit. You could have a fucking Twitch on teaching people. Yeah, dude. Kind of I mean, the <laughs> other dog whisper doesn't do shows anymore. Why don't you jump on and <laughs> I know. The new, for the new generation, dude? Right. No, I, I just I did it for so long. It comes out whenever I uh, get around a friend, and you know, I, I see their dog or whatever. You know, I can instantly see the challenges that they're having at their house. I stop by a friend's house. And, I always help people out. I always end up telling them what to do, or I just did it too long, you know, or uh, too long not to remember it all. But, but yeah, yeah, it's just funny. I, I like with the situation with Paul. I just saw the challenges that the dog has, and it's simple. Once you can understand the psychology of the dog, then you can, you know, figure out how to get them to understand what you want them to understand, you know. But um, yeah. But yeah. yeah. So okay, let's uh, let's move away from dogs again. Let's go back into uh, the timeline. So let's talk about por portal because that's actually a really good. That's a perfect time for us to start because it's post cynic. You get we, we with Paul's episode. We kind of already know about how happened, how cynic kind of dissolved and in, into portal. But I want to know about how your experience with portal was because I heard Paul's, but I'd like to hear yours as well. And since you're here together, you guys can talk about that. Yeah. Well, well, well. My experience um with portal, we were taking a different approach you know we just uh didn't have the best you know experience with the focus tour we came back like we said let's try something different let's try something more radio friendly you know something that could sell or could be played on the radio and um and go a different direction and not have the heavy vocals and all that and and um it was a good experience like i, I really enjoyed um working with Chris Kringle and, and Aruna Abrams. She's a amazingly talented gal and, and Chris as well. And um, so it was, it was interesting. So I really liked the, the songs with Portal. I really liked uh, the tunes and all that. But again, I, I actually, I was a little bored, you know, after coming off playing all the stuff that we played with Focus and, um, and everything like that. I'm glad we did it. It was a completely different side in a completely different direction and, and actually gained interest. I think it was Atlantic was uh, looking at us um, for that album, if I remember correctly. And But um, but no, I think it was a great experience. I, I think it was crazy that that album just sat in the closet for how many years. It was a pretty much a finished album, you know, demo, recorded two different demos, but finished album for... Uh, I don't know how many years was it, Paul, until that got finally released after we recorded it. I think Paul's a little busy right now talking to somebody else. Oh, he's gone. That's okay. Uh, we can, we can uh, chime. That's back. okay. So so yeah, but it was a uh, it was it was a great experience. It was definitely a different album. Um, I wish we would have gotten the uh, opportunity to work with Atlantic. Atlantic was actually shopping us, but we couldn't get off the. Uh, the contract with Roadrunner Records, so uh, mm -hmm. we lost that deal. Yeah. So, um, 
but yeah, yeah, I think it's good music. I think it's uh, um, well done, and it was a good change and all that. But uh, I, I don't know if I would have lasted long for me. I, it kind of, I got mm -hmm. bored with it pretty quick, playing it wise, because I, I always love to be challenged. I guess when I play. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think uh, which is understandable and respectable. He's still like there. Oh, I lost you for a second. Go ahead. Oh, I, I'll just say that the three Portal songs that are on the Focus re-release, so I heard those pretty much within, you know, days of first hearing Cynic. And, uh, oh, interesting. And it was so cool. Um, so to me, there was, no, there was no delay between the two projects. It was presented in the CD re-release as as truly what it was the next band and and just those three songs um but those three songs are just gorgeous man cosmos the circle's gone and endless, endless yeah and and um i i stand by those you know just just being amazing record uh, or amazing songs um mm -hmm. and then it was cool to finally hear the demo the full the well it's called the portal tapes i guess but the, the full album right. later on but um, there's something special about those three songs in particular. And I think that the way that the re-release came out with just those three included was was really cool, a really good decision um, on behalf of the re-release team. So, Yeah, I think that that's what kind of sparked uh, being able to release the whole, you know, album later which mm -hmm. was, you know, releasing those three songs. And, and again, I think they were great. It was it was our shot at playing something commercially viable. Uh, mm -hmm. At that time, you know, we were thinking, let's do something that maybe could get on the radio or we could maybe survive off this. Because that was that was a big problem. We came off the Focus tour. We were broke, you know, just as broke as when we left. And, of course, as we've talked about or it's been mentioned before, we didn't have, you know, the full support of all the fans at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a hard run. So we, we said, let's do something that can get on the radio. And it was something that it wasn't necessarily something that... Uh, we were all wanting to do on the side already. It was like, focus, let's do something that can be radio friendly. And that's why we even got the, had a gal singing with us too, you know, and lost the heavy uh, vocals and one solo per song. You know what I mean? It was uh, a totally different uh, approach and interesting after coming, it, totally different approach, especially after an album as busy as focus was to go to something that's simple was uh an interesting change you know yeah definitely yeah. but i think that i think that um there are and that's probably a better question for paul but there are a lot of elements in portal that you hear in the in the in the cynic after focus you know um i i think there's a tie there you know mm -hmm. <laughs> I definitely think there's a bridge to Portal, and you can hear it in like the Holdsworth influence, you know, clean, um, atmospheric side of Cynic that kind of was like pushed into Portal plus, you know, what you guys wanted to do with it. But yeah, I think that that was the bridge there is like that clean, atmospheric guitaring shit that you guys were doing in between right and i, I loved hearing because 
I've I've told you guys I'm I'm the biggest fanboy. Like Cynic has been my favorite band for the longest time. So anything that it, it branches off of that Cynic tree, it, it's for me. Right. You know. Right. And I will awesome. love it. I will love it. I love everything. Everything. Gordy and Not as well. Love it all. Yep. Both albums. Love it. And and Sean's uh uh i can't pronounce it but his solo record the one that was before gordian knot that's a great record too dude it's a chord it's like c-o-r-d yeah that record is fucking amazing guys if you haven't heard sean malone's solo record before the gordian knot shit you do yourself a favor and go find it it's it's readily available on youtube i'm sure uh, oh, yeah. It's it's a fun listen from front to back for sure. Yeah, uh, he he was an amazing musician, that's for sure. Guy was mm-hmm. all talent. Yeah, I I and and I've re uh you know re listened to Gordian not recently because I'm on these long drives back and forth every week and th- that's another thing too is just I I felt really tapped into Malone mainly even though i was hearing all you guys playing with malone i i was i just know that this was his brain child and i oh, wanted to baby. really tap into his vibe when i'm listening to it and oh my god it really shows sean malone when you when you get on that level while listening to that stuff yeah yeah and and that that definitely was his baby yes uh, just and you can feel it him. dude yeah, and, and working with him on Emergent, um, he would he would same thing, would write the, the song structure, he would write the skeleton, and then I would put the guitars over the top. Mm-hmm. But it was his gig, so I would come in with a rhythm, and he and, and 90% of the stuff he, he liked or whatever, but he'd go, okay, actually, let's try it, put the accent on this beat, or try changing this, or, you know, and he would vamp it. Um, which was cool. It was like his project. It was like, tell me what you want to want want to hear or what you want me to play, and I'll you know we revise it. So, I would write the the music, and then when we get together and we record it, we'd play it five different ways before he goes, okay, that's the one that I want to keep or that's the one I'm going to take. But um, I, I but love it was that his, too. His baby, him on the uh, on the fretless, and then on the Chapman stick. You know, I mean the the guy on I I don't know anyone that. I, He's the reason why I know about the instrument in the first place and then <laughs> yeah. made me follow that rabbit hole down and yeah. find other guys that are Chapman stick players as well. But it was you guys and Sean Malone that introduced me to this new instrument, you know? And, and, and was, still to this day, you don't see it in many bands at all in our realm. You don't, you don't, and, and a lot of people that you see playing the Chapman stick aren't really that proficient. He was, he was pretty, pretty damn proficient on the instrument. In comparison to he a was, lot of he was proficient on piano. He, Malone was a multi instrumentalist. Like he, Reiner yeah. would always say that Sean Malone understands my drumming better than I do. Wow. And, yeah. Uh, like yeah. he literally, he had such deep musical knowledge. You know what I mean? It was like ridiculous, wow. and. Uh, I always think about this, which is when we made, went to make Trace in Air, Malone got robbed. He was living in a fucking, at a university 
and his his room, I guess wherever he was, a little apartment he was renting, got robbed. They stole everything. It was all on hard drives. And he had apparently like another couple records of Gordy Knot type shit that is gone. That he never. I know, dude. You so talked was, about it, dude. I was like, oh, I was, I was gut. Yeah. I was hitting the gut when you said that, dude. And when he like, you know, and like Jason was saying. He was so precise in his compositions. Like, people haven't heard half of his classical music, but he wrote all these chorales and symphonic things. He was analyzing Bach's music. Like, he was genius scholar, professor, but also had this weird, like, anomalous sense of, like, deep feeling and, like, unorthodox creativity. It wasn't just, like, academic. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. he straddled that line. He was like a Jocko. You know what I mean? It was like... Totally yeah. a fucking master, but also like outside the box, you know. Right. And um, and he fucking dude, he you know. I remember when I did the, some Gordian knot stuff. Like he was like, okay, do this, do a solo. Don't end the note on F sharp on this on this bar. I was like, oh my god, like that's the one note I want to fucking end this solo. On. Like he knew, you know what I mean? He like, knows, but yeah. he was so yeah. meticulous. You know, yeah. like, and when he would send bass parts, like when we were working on new songs, I'll send him a riff or something. He'd send me like five to ten different versions of how to approach the bass, and wow. he would turn the, the beat upside down. He would turn the melody upside down. Like he would, he knew how to like invert things because as the bass player that's holding down the harmony and the rhythm, the groove where things sit beyond the drummer. It was like we had this mastery of composition that was like it's yeah. so hard to it's such a incredible so i feel so lucky that i got to fucking jam with somebody like that and work on music because he was so yeah. high level dude was ridiculous, so yeah That's he wasn't wasn't he a, a phd in music composition he finally got his phd yes, if I was correct. yeah, yeah. He did before. wow phd yeah i mean it was he, he had come up to me uh, and asked me about one of my solos on on focus i think it was i'm but a wave two or whatever and he said you, you end the solo with uh you know with a, a b note and i'm like okay thanks for telling me is there any reason and he goes because it's not in the key and i and he goes it's not in the key so why did you play it and i said because it sounded good he goes it's brilliant he goes i love it but it's just hey, not yeah. in the key and he knew everything yeah, yeah, and, and he was willing to break the rules, and he was willing oh, to yeah. break the rules. Totally, and that's the whole thing. Yes. Yeah. You gotta know the rules to be able to break them, right? Yeah, yeah. man, definitely. Not necessarily. But you know, I guess no. You can break the rules without knowing them. <laughs> you don't. Have, I mean, you, me being yeah. trying to be profound, and I fucked it up. <laughs> that's a good no, that's a quote. That's we all that's, know that one. Yeah, that's I, just I have the, to hang up, you guys. Though I gotta go. I got. All right, dude. All right. Thank you for showing up, all. Man, Love you, buddy. Yeah, Rock on. You're in San Francisco, dude. I should be getting a text message from you soon since you're in San Francisco, bro. All right, have a good time tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was a quick trip. It was a spontaneous thing. I was in, I was in Santa Rosa. Good, dude. I'm you know? just fucking around, dude. I'm just fucking around. I know. No, we have a good hang, time, though, man. We do. Yeah, yeah. Hell but, yeah. Um, yeah. Rock on, brother. Thank you so much for popping in, Yeah, good to see you guys. Yeah, you too, man. Good stuff. Have a good rest of your night, dude. 
Hell yeah, man. Yeah, Love you, buddy. Hell yeah, dude. Later, Paul. Yeah, dude. That was cool. There we go. That was cool, man. Yeah. But yeah, it's cool to see you guys to riff on, you know, um the dude that you guys loved and jammed with and here is small things that he did well and that no one really is ever gonna know he was very i remember like looking one time for a, 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 a interview with him like i just want to hear his voice like you know as like a as and he there was like nothing there's one base clinic where he or might have been a, a war a, a chapman stick clinic where he like spoke for a second I'm like okay that's what his voice sounds like i had no idea that he like he was so quiet to himself, you know, and you guys he knew him. A, a soft-spoken guy, very yeah. soft-spoken person. And um, it's funny, even um, going through, I've been going through a lot of old footage, uh, um, old cynic footage. And even in the old footage, there's very little that you catch of him talking. And I don't know if he was just magic at avoiding the camera because mm-hmm. we all talked and, you know, it was, we were all in the middle of these conversations and he was too, but man, he just has a way of avoiding, uh, avoiding talking on camera, I guess. And, and it's funny because, um, he, he was a, a PhD. So he was, you know, in order to get your PhD, you actually have to teach master classes. So I remember he was professor Malone in, in the university of, uh, Oregon when we were working on Gordy and not, I would actually go and stay at his uh, teacher's apartment and we would record in the, the apartment. Um, mm-hmm. But extremely articulate, extremely well-spoken, but just very humble and very soft-spoken. You would, you, you know, um, just a, a guy that, that definitely chose his words, you know, yeah. definitely chose his yeah. words. And, but a brilliant, I mean, he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Uh, person in so many ways so what, what do you what, i mean you know like there's a dynamic of a band hanging out and stuff and touring and all the all those fun memories and stuff like what was it like like because I, I know nothing i know i know you and paul like pretty much and and sean and the other sean um but for him he was kind of like you said he was kind of like the mysterious figure like what was he did he ever joke around was there like was, was there things that made him laugh yeah, more than yeah yeah, yeah. He had a he had a um, he had a good sense of humor and his 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 jokes were um, funny but but clever you know very yeah, yeah. clever yeah. thought out like that type of uh, that type of personality you know um, yeah you know but like even on tour so on tour there was a lot of, of partying. Um, I mean, mostly people drinking beer and smoking pot. That was, you know, like the biggest yeah. thing and uh, other stuff on, on thing. But I remember, you know, always the smoking and the partying bothered him, you know, because he mm. uh, he didn't partake in, in either. Um, and he would get up before a lot of the people on the bus would wake up. And he would mm-hmm. go out and check out the, the area in the city sometimes on his own, you know, mm-hmm. and just kind of have his own time or whatever. So in those ways, he was a little quiet. But um, but no, he was he was normal. He's just he wasn't he wasn't the guy that was going to be running around making all the noise. There was always someone else willing to do that. And Sean would be reserved 
standing there just kind of observing everything and um, you'd yeah. be in a conversation or whatever, but it's just, he's not boisterous or anything like that. He's uh, um, just a very, uh, etiquette wise, very proper etiquette, uh, etiquette wise person, you know, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. That's very, very cool. Just so good. Oh, I just was going to say, um, I wish I could have studied with Sean and been his student at university. That would have been very cool. Yeah. And, you know, and he tried to, uh, to teach me. So, so again, my, I'm, I'm horrible at theory. Most of my playing is, is, you know, just ear, ear player and all that. And, um, so he would always try to help me with theory and, and stuff like that. And he was a, um, just a great teacher. You know what I mean? He was very patient and he had a lot of students uh, that had passed, you know, through the time that I knew him or especially in, at the University of Oregon and all that. Um, but yeah, he was definitely special. I think, especially if you're a bass player and, um, or, or any musician, you know, to have been coming up and study under him would have been a, an amazing experience. He would have been the guy that you could come up to with anything like i mm -hmm. like paul said that he could he knows all the rules but he could also stand outside the box mm -hmm. um so he would have would have been a, a really cool guy to stun together i bet it, it's funny because when we did the gordian knot album he had called me up and he had asked me you know about playing on there and i said i said where are you and he goes i'm over at the the university of oregon which was like a two hour drive from where I was in Portland. Oh, and, wow. um, and I go, so what are you, wh what are you doing now? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm working towards my PhD. And that's when I, that's how I found, you know, I knew he was teaching master classes. So I, so I said, aren't you teaching master's classes? And, um, and he goes, yeah. And I go, don't you have some sick student there that could just like, fucking shred and you know i mean why the heck are you asking me to play uh on your album at this point and he'd said that um he goes all the students he goes if i asked them to write something i could uh pretty much take their piece and go into the theory book turn to the page and go okay that's exactly where this came from and he says but you just play what you hear or play what you hear is appropriate for music and I think that that's where uh, Sean and I could relate the most was out of the box because I couldn't get in the box because I was horrible at, you know, at, at theory or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, and that's why he actually had asked me to play on the album because, um, because it, and that, that's why I think it's always been a, a, one of the benefits for me musically is my lack of theory is you know, never made me have any rules. I never had to play mm -hmm. by any rules, yeah. play whatever I want, whatever I hear. And um, that's what it's been been said to me a lot. It's I always play what's appropriate for the music. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how I ended up on there on, on Gordian Knot. Interesting, just mentioning the schooling and all that. But yeah, he was, he was brilliant. He would have been wonderful for anyone to study under. And anybody that I know that has really appreciates the time and, um he just had so much information to give he would overwhelm right. the students you know not overwhelm them in a bad way but overwhelm them in 
you know, how much can you absorb? Because I got a lot to give you. you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, we heard he had his own book that he was lost on his hard drive uh, or because he got broken into. That was the story that we heard he, from Paul. He lost. So, so if I heard correctly, Paul said that he had uh, another two Gordian Knot albums already written mm -hmm. uh, on that hard drive. But I remember when that happened, I didn't know about the Gordian Knot, but he had lost his, he not only lost that, he lost his full catalog, his full music catalog. Yeah, And, and I he was up like plus 60 albums that he played on and like, he, and then he had lost, um, I think a lot of his literature because, you know, he wrote some books. He was getting ready to put a book out. He literally yep. was putting a, a book out and, and it was done and it was on that hard drive. And he had a lot of uh, interesting, that I remember, um, I had lost contact with him for, or not lost contact, but just, you know, you, you had your separate ways and you talk here yeah. and there. But I remember that I got an email from him and I was like, oh, yo, man, it's been a while. You know, what's up? Uh, la, la, la. I said, so I said, hey, why don't we call sometime and chat so we can so we can catch up? And he goes, well, you got to give me the exact time and day of when you can call because I need to make sure that I'm by the phone. And I'm like, by the phone? And he's like, yeah, I don't have a cell phone. I only use a landline. Wow. And long story short, he had he had had um, it's he told me he had some problem with like identity theft, like someone had, had tried to steal his identity. And, you know, and then so he um, just shut down everything and he only used his email and a landline and he called me, you know, we ended up chatting and all that. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so he had some interesting experiences that I that I know that affected him, you know, the, the, um, identity type theft type thing. And then the, uh, having his stuff stolen, that was a, a really hard one on him. And, but, uh, he definitely was not easy to find or get in contact with all the time. You know, yeah. you could send an email and hear from him in a little while and it was back and forth. Now, of course I got out of the scene a music scene for, for quite a few years, raised by two kids and um, did all that. So my uh, time with Malone after Gordian Knot was just sparsely here or there. So Paul may have a different, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. version on that. But, but yeah, a lot of those things affected him and he was just very hard to find, you know, and he would, he would kind of fade in and fade out of social uh, networking or social socializing with people mm -hmm. if that makes you know sense. So he was he was an interesting guy, man. He was a, a wonderful person and brilliant. Um, totally, again, I can't say that enough. Brilliant, but but definitely not your run of the mill character. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I I wish I could have had a conversation with him just to pick that brain a little bit, you know. But you had mentioned you had you had mentioned getting out of the scene and raising a couple kids. Um, so I mean, was was that brought on by the the cynic dissolving portal dissolving, and then yeah, yeah. So so basically, um, when focus didn't go through, and then when. Um, 
the portal thing fell through, we, we pretty much split up mm-hmm. at that point. And um, I really didn't want anything to do with, uh, with the music industry. The music industry stole my creative flair. If that mm, makes sense, the business does, side of it, it took away my, my creative. So I said to myself, you know what? I want to enjoy music for me. So yeah. if I can't do it for the for you know for everyone else's enjoyment, I can just sit in my room. I got the you know Pro Tools. I can write, record, and play music, and you know. So I I, I basically got out of it professionally. Um, for a few years until I ended up doing the Gordian Knot album and then uh, ended up not doing anything until recently, until just, uh, yeah, just a couple of years so, ago. Or so the Gordian Knot was the last thing you were really involved in, huh? Gordian Knot was the, let me make sure, was the last thing I was really involved in. Since then, I did that song with, um, with um, Robin and Timon. Um, oh, yeah. Broken eggshell repair kit. Mm, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. 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 That was the first the solo that I did on there. That was the first of me playing professionally, I guess, since uh, since Gordian Knot. So, so I, I had. To, I was going to say from uh, so you obviously never stopped playing though. So in in your time in between then, what was your regimen? Would you play? two three times a week every day or i would go from playing every day to playing once every two three months it depended on where i was at and um and and that's the same way it's interesting now i take breaks i I don't play consistently you know Mm -hmm. it's got to be the energy has to be there and the creative spark has to be there right um and i think that sometimes letting it settle and not just stepping away from the instrument sometimes gives you a, a better perspective when you come back again. I agree. So, so yeah, I've never been one about, um, well, I, I've never been good studiously. So I've never been good with theory. I've never been good with doing my homework and doing my repetition practicing or, you know, uh, rudimental practicing. I've always been bad with that. It's just play and be creative when, when the energy is there, you know, um, I I tend to uh, really enjoy projects that are played from feel and heart and soul. You know, I yeah. It, obviously, there are plenty of projects that I like where people do hit the books and they know how to write their songs in you know a certain way. But when it it just goes off a of feel and it feels right, it tends to resonate deeply with a lot more people i think the intent is is more sincere and i think it comes out in the music if if you really enjoy it and feel good when you play it and and that was that was the reason i got out of music and the reason i got back into music was um was to do it for enjoyment and so in me coming back and like doing this project with amnion in germany and 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 I got another project uh, in LA, but that's all on hold. And I'll say more about that uh, maybe sometime later. But mm-hmm. um, but in coming back to to music, 
I said to myself before I'll do anything professionally, I, I will not go back and and I, I one don't want to get signed to a record company ever again. Yeah, I'd rather mm -hmm. do something independent. Um, and if I don't enjoy it, I'm not playing it. So you know, some people you know would ask me to do a solo or would ask me to to play on something, and I tell them, listen, I'm open. Send me the music if I feel I can contribute to it, and if I can feel like I have the I, I hear the spark and that that I can contribute to that music, then we can talk about playing, uh, playing it. But if I don't have the interest or don't have the spark, even if it's a paid project, I don't want it. You know because I don't want to lose the creative side of right. enjoying playing music. So I work other yeah. jobs so I can play what I want to play and playing anything i don't want to play you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, exactly which, i think your music comes out more sincere that way yeah um you can't make a living off of it but it comes out more sincere and then yeah uh, like you yeah. said the more sincere your intent of music the more people for some reason seem to be able to relate exactly to yeah then yeah exactly then you separate that from your art and you make the best art it's like true to your creativity not and also it's something that you would like you would never want to do something that you would never be you'd be like oh i never want to listen to that again you know you want you be like oh i i felt that i want to see you know what i want to re-listen to something that i contributed to and be like oh yeah that's what i was feeling when i wrote that you know exactly exactly not forced not forced yeah well i we are over three hours wow. jason I, I mean we can keep talking if you want to because i can keep digging into you all night dude but I, if fine. not whatever you guys, whatever you guys want i uh like i said i can talk or we could we could call it whatever if you guys have more questions i'm willing okay then my last question would be literally just so after focus and all that stuff what have you been doing that what's the passion in your life post music besides music and i know we talked animals but moving on and out of animal training and all that stuff what have you been passionate about up until this point i had uh, i had substituted some of the of the music with uh, photography and art actually okay. was what i was right. doing in between on those off times i still have my my ability to play still had you know pro tools or logic whatever it's using at the time um but i actually had, had opened a photography business and i had a, a photography business for a few years and that was fun but i got tired of shooting the same old you know uh scenarios i wanted to do stuff that was a little bit more artistic so i ended up um making some art for a while and i was uh um had some art available i actually had sold one for an album cover i'd sold you know a few pieces here and there and but basically it was through the photography i was um taking uh big tanks of water basically setting up strobes and lights around it and then dropping all different colors and um food colors and and different sorts of paints and stuff and actually photography uh, photographing it while it was falling in the different colors and the different shapes and then would take that and do post-production and photoshop and butterfly them and 
and handsome and do all kinds of stuff and um, was basically uh, producing art for fun. That's nice. about the only thing. Yeah. Photography and, and art and then, you know, whatever animal stuff I never can get around. You know? <laughs> okay, now I said that was my last question, but my question to you right now is what pets do you currently have right now? Right now, just uh, a few cats that live outside. I don't even have an, an indoor pet right now. Okay. Um, the dog, the dog thing, I did, I did so heavily. Um, and owning a dog, you really, you, uh, you gotta, you can't travel. You know, you can't leave. You can't travel as much or whatever. So that's one of the reasons I don't have a dog. I still love dogs. Uh, I'll pet smart hotel tomorrow. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Pet yeah, hotel yeah, so, yeah. so I've, I've got a bunch of stray cats that have adopted me so they come over and they they uh That's they right. eat every day right. every night you know and they catch your vibe a, dude they're like this is the guy to go to right here oh i see they see a sucker you know sucker born right when they see me you know they know i'm gonna feed them but my thing is is if you show up uh, i'll let you i'll give you some food you know i'm not gonna yeah. uh, with the yeah, yeah you know so I'll yeah. have one night. I'll have four cats. Another night, I'll have eight that'll show up. You know, wanting to eat or whatever. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but yeah, that's that's about it uh, for animals right now. That's right on. That's for me at the the shelter. Like, I I can't just go to the shelter. Like, let's go look up the animals. That's yeah, not nah. the thing. No, don't take, ever do that. I'll take an animal or two home. Like, I can't just like go yeah. like oh, yeah. look at the cat that's that's or the dog yeah. that's like oh dude come on like what's uh, up dude? I'm stuck in this thing and I was like. I have to take. I have to take them. I have to take one at least. Like I'm, or else I feel like an asshole. Yeah, uh, yeah. I can't do it. It's so yeah. sad, man. There's so many. You know, know so man. many. So, I actually have got a couple neighbors, and um, we. What we do is we trap them, and we get them either neutered or spayed. They offer a, a free service here, and then you know we cut them loose. And between the two or three of us, they got like a buffet. They just kind of bounce from house to house, whatever they're in the mood for. But yeah. You know, but it's sad. There's so many out there, and there's so many in the shelters. And, Unfortunately, yeah. You know, yeah. And so, and you kind of touched on a part of it, which is a lot of people who say, "Oh, I want a pet," and then after they, the honeymoon yeah. phase is over, they're done. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they're like, you're an outside cat on you're you're an outside cat on Fourth of July. You know, it's like then they run right. away forever. Right. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that, where it's like. Yeah. I've had a roommate before that had an amazing cat, and she left him out on Fourth of July, and that was obviously the last time we saw the cat because you don't you have to on those kind of like explosion days you have to really keep them in because they're gonna they're gonna bail you know yeah but, the cat never came back oh yeah no no definitely not no you know I was like came home and was like oh he's still gone three days later I'm like what the fuck did you leave him out on Fourth if like, you put yourself like, in the cast <laughs> position you're like okay this is the people or this is my shelter and then all of a sudden they put me out and there's explosions everywhere yeah. fuck those people i'm out dude they didn't it's like oh you're two years me. old here's vietnam what do you think about yeah. <laughs> what do you think about vietnam is that chill oh <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah no it's like they're just freak out and they're just they're only like down to their devices that's all they have you know so it's, yeah it sucks yeah well, yeah. Jason, thanks, thanks so much for coming on, man. Dude, this, this is so fucking awesome. fun, dude. Like, I had a great thank time you. tonight. Thanks for having me. It was a, it's a lot of fun chatting with you guys. Hell yeah, yeah. dude. Jason, I, I'd love to keep in touch with you, bro. And um, I, I am excited for 
all the new releases that or new projects you mentioned one that you we can't really talk about right now that's exciting you got two things that are coming down the pike and i'm excited for both of them dude so yeah thank you so much it's it's been a while and, and it's been interesting um it seems like it's much harder to get people to play these days you know so, so on these projects I have actually three projects that have either been um, delayed or, you know, just put back. Mm -hmm. I had actually hoped to have some music out actually over a year ago. And um, just, I don't know. I don't know what, what the, the climate is now with the music industry or whatever, but it just seems like everything uh, has taken a little longer. But I am excited to get some new music out for, for people to listen to and uh, hope, hope that everyone enjoys it you know what i mean It'd be fun to see but uh i wish i could have gotten it out a little quicker that's uh, all good dude you've inspired hey. so many people man thank you thank you for oh, yeah. Definitely. like yeah yeah thanks for the years of inspiration definitely yeah, exactly. and don't worry about when it's going to come out dude we're ready for it whenever it does dude we're not gonna we're not gonna be but yeah, yeah i mean I'm, I'm excited hell yeah we are too, dude. And, and thank you, Jason. And, uh, and again, thank you so much for all of your time. I know it's very late for you, dude. So thanks for sticking it out and hanging out with us, dude. And you're more than welcome to come back on when those projects drop. If you want to, you know, yeah, plug yeah, in for and all sure. that, I, that would be cool. That would be cool for sure. Yeah, and, dude. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and thanks for having me and, and thanks for uh, going down memory lane with me. That was kind of interesting. That was awesome. and, Totally, back some good memories and Hell yeah. Um, yeah, I look forward to the to the next time. I really appreciate it, guys. Rock on, Jason. All right. Dude, thank you, man. All right, one more time. Let's do the plugs real quick. Battleforgecoffee.com. Get your caffeine over there. Calidepodcast.bigcartel.com. Get your apparel there. And then uh we got uh oh, oh, oh wait don't tell me uh, oh it's the rehearsal studio it's oh fuck oh. i forgot it <laughs> generator dude it's generator rehearsal studios.com joel do that <laughs> actually dude i've only had two topo chicos tonight guys because a legend you know, was on and i did not want to get fucking crazy um <laughs> then uh the archaic tour let's pop That's that me. flyer up one more time boom get nice. out to any of those dates that i still can't see um <laughs> find the date find the place and be there and support your underground death metal and we love you guys so much dude sick dude dot 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 and <laughs> have a great rest of, have a great weekend and we will always be here next week fuck yeah thanks jason rock on guys thanks guys thank Peace. you so much Thank you, buddy.